This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. This episode is a rebroadcast of an episode that we recorded back in the first season of Danger Close with a very special guest, Chris Ryan. If you aren't familiar with Chris Ryan, you will be after this podcast. He is an SAS operative who, in the first Gulf War, was contacted by the enemy as one of the squad members in Bravo 2-0. He then patrolled 300 kilometers to Syria. It's an incredible story, and uh, what an amazing guy. He is certainly one of my heroes, and uh, meeting him, talking to him was uh, was nothing short of a great honor. So enjoy the podcast. He's also the author of thrillers, of young adult books, and of history books. So uh, he has done quite a bit since leaving the SAS. Enjoy the podcast. Chris Ryan. I am so excited that you agreed to do this podcast because I've known about you obviously for a long, long time, and uh, and it's just an honor for me to get to to sit down with you here for for a few minutes and uh, and get to know you a little bit. Oh no, thank you very much, and that's very kind of saying so. <laughs> oh man, of course. So I first became aware of you through this book, and you can probably uh, let's see with the camera there. But uh, that was an old one, as you can tell. Yes. I don't know if you 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 know all your covers very well, but I got this in. Probably 1996, I want to say, maybe 96, 97, and read it in my first platoon as a new guy in the SEAL teams. And, yes. uh, and I took a couple of notes here, uh, and I can see my, my writing from way back then. <laughs> uh, so my notes were these. My notes were um, night vision, check. Yes. Food, yes. check. <laughs> Iodine tablets, check. check. Uh, suppressed weapons, check. Yeah. And... Uh, but I think so. I can't read my writing right here, but I think it says Gore-Tex bivy and space blanket. Yeah. So those those were my were my takeaways um, <laughs> from from reading this back then. But um, for those that aren't familiar with you, um, would you mind giving a little uh, little background on uh, your your path into the SAS and up to this point? Yeah. Um, well, as a young guy, I, I was um, well. I was born up in Newcastle, which um, is predominantly a, a mining town. Um, my parents weren't uh, wealthy, and um, all I wanted to do was to travel, get out and see the world. And uh, I wasn't uh, really academic at school um, to, to begin with. And um, I guess I squandered quite a bit of my, my childhood by daydreaming. And um, the only way I thought I could get around to see you know, our, our planet was to join the army. Um, I applied to join the army as a boy soldier, but... Prior to the entry, I got jaundice and um, I missed that uh, entry. Then I joined the, or what are what we would call our territorial army uh, reservists, and um, it was probably a bad mistake because I got settled in that unit, and you know we were doing exciting things, but it, you know wasn't in the army. And then when I got to about twenty three, I applied to join twenty two SES, the regular army. Uh, or regular unit of the SAS. Um, I had to join our parachute regiment, and um, from there joined uh, two two SAS. Uh, you know, past selection. I think it was eighty four, eighty five, um, which is a six month uh, process, and then joined B squadron. Um, and from there, um, 
we would have a six-month rotation where we go from the anti-terrorist team to standby squadron to training squadron. And then we had team tasks where we would go around the world training foreign troops and, and various other things, and then personal skills. So I did uh, several rotations of that. Um, I was then um, selected and sent off to the German Alpine Guide School, where I uh, basically um, became an Alpine Guide over a period of two years. Um, and that was to basically run the regiment's uh, mountaineering side of, of that carder. Now, when I came back from there, I'd been out of the system for some time. For, well, like, you know, as you know, once you leave your unit, you come back after two years, you're a bit rusty. But I came back in onto the SP team, the Special Projects team, which is our anti-terrorist unit. And uh, during that period, I'd been selected to go to Everest. And um, I'd been told by the reg regiment in the summer, as it was kicking off in the Middle East, that I wouldn't be involved. I, I would be allowed to go off um, in the new year to do this attempt on, on, on the mountain. So basically, I, I wasn't really paying much attention with what was going on out there. Um, B Squadron um, had been told that they would remain on the anti-terrorist team and wouldn't get involved uh, with the um, with that conflict. Mm. And typical of the regiment, um, in the December, we all got called into the office. Um, I was, I think I was first on the list. Um, Everest has been cancelled. Um, B Squadron would deploy um, out to the Middle East um, in support of A Squadron and D Squadron. And um, basically, we would um, be ca battlefield casualty replacements. So the idea was A and D Squadron would uh, split up and they would be in half squadron formations in Western Iraq and dominate the area. If any of the guys got injured, you know, they would just take them from us and uh, we would we would take their place. Now, behind the scenes, uh, General Schwarzkopf, who I had the utmost respect for, um, I think he was a he was a, a great commander. Um, he was arguing with our commander, who was General de Billier. De Billier wanted to get the regiment across the border. Schwarzkopf basically said, um, we'll send the B-52s over, suppress the Iraqis and then flatten them and then roll the armor in. Well, we kept getting start times of when we were going to cross into the border. And um, it basically came that there'd been a, a deal brokered that they would send three patrols deep into, into Iraq in the Ambar region. And uh, they would um, establish observation posts. And um, we were to locate uh, Scud missiles. So rather than take the guys from A and D squadron who had been doing all the build-up training, they took us in our entirety. And we basically, we were the poor cousins. We didn't have any of the kit. And that list that you um, just mentioned there, when we were tasked for this, I can remember going to the, um, the sergeant major and saying, okay, uh, we, night, we need night vision. And there was, there's none, there's none left for you. Um, we need suppressed weapons. I think the comeback was, my name, my nickname in, in the regiment was Geordie. This guy came and said, Geordie, who the hell do you think you are, James Bond? And I'm like, <laughs> no. And that, mind you, that was the thinking at the time. Yeah. It was suppressed weapons, who uses them type oh of my. thing. And then it was the mapping. Um, the mapping we were supplied um, dated back to 1945, which was- I remember reading that. Yep. Um, we, we knew, well, Delta, A Squadron of Delta were up the road from us, and they had the facility to get satellite imagery. And uh, the joke was- 
our, our commander said, no, we can't uh, go to the Americans because of OPSEC. <laughs> I think they didn't have a clue how tight the Americans OPSEC actually was. We had local guys coming into our ops room, sweeping up like oh local Arabs, you know, you know, wow. so it was, it, it was annoying. Again, I asked about, you know, what the borders were like and various other things and everything else was just coming back negative. So we went in basically half cocked. Um, I mean, that's a condensed thing yeah, to yeah. get me into that, uh, to that book there. Amazing. And were you though, everybody had some sort of cold weather warfare type training, uh, in, in the regiment or was, and did you got more specialized training or did everybody, had, yeah, what was yeah, everybody's uh, level of cold weather yeah. warfare training? Well, um, actually there was, um, Bob Consiglio, he was the youngest member of the patrol. He'd been an ex bootneck, um, Marine and they'd worked in the, in, in the snow. Um, then the rest of the guys know they were in a troop and mobility troop and their backgrounds, um, two of the guys had come from the parachute regiment. One had been an infantryman and another had been an engineer. Then we had a New Zealand guy and uh, an Australian in the, in the patrol. So in terms of, you know, working in the cold, I, it was me that had the experience on that. That's amazing. It's amazing also uh, going back and uh, and just skimming through this because I hadn't read it in so many years, but obviously you can tell it's well-worn because, you know, there weren't that many, you know, firsthand accounts between really Vietnam and uh, and when you wrote this this book. Um, so, of course, I tried to read everything I, I possibly could uh, just to make myself a better operator, a better leader. Uh, and it, it's amazing how many parallels there are between this in 1991 and then 2001, 2002, in Afghanistan, suppressed weapons being being one of them, not absolutely for, for more reasons than just uh, making the making it quieter, but that muzzle flash. Um, yeah, no, totally. Night, the enemy just hones in on that, and so we learned that we had some similar experiences with with maps. Although, of course, we had some better maps, but Google Earth didn't exist yet in two thousand one, uh, yep. so we still had some of those old mapping issues as well. But it's amazing the uh, the similarities between this book and ten years later uh, after September eleventh. Well, I think there was a key thing within the regiment, the SES. And this was in Gulf War II. Um, it was under McChrystal. And um, he he started Task Force Black, where he had the, the SAS and Delta work together and six um, and bring them together and carry out missions. And then the regiment saw the equipment you guys had and then started copying it from everything from the uniform down to procedures, uh, you know, weaponry, imagery, everything. And I think it was a good thing for us because we were, you know, we were hanging on to your shirt tails in terms of how much development you guys were, were bringing along to the show without a shadow. And when I now look back at, say, what we were dressed in when we deployed into Iraq to what the guys have got now, it's oh. just light, light and day, or day and night, sorry. Yeah, no, totally different. Just the way that, that warfare pushes that innovation, both uh, tactics and obviously equipment as well uh, over a protracted period of time. And uh, you know, for us, it's interesting how things come, uh, not really full circle, but how there's so many similarities between uh, our military starting our counterterrorist focused uh, 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 units back in the early 80s, late 70s, and putting all that together based off the SAS and based off Charlie Beckwith's experience, which yeah. I think was in the, his exchange was the in 60s. the 60s. <laughs> yes. And then, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, commanding Project Delta in Vietnam and then uh, starting our uh, our 
tier one counterterrorist units later uh, in the late seventies. But uh, looking at you guys and looking at what you guys were wearing, what you got, what weapons you guys were using, uh, what the tactics you guys were using. Of course, Princess Gate happens there. Uh, you know, all those lessons learned, and then taking those and applying them to uh, well, to to what we're focused on uh, in, in the United States, and then having all this time with just flashpoints with with Grenada, with Panama, Mogadishu, but not sustained combat operations like we had in Vietnam. So there are these little flashpoints that you could grab a few lessons from. Uh, and there was a, obviously a ton in, in this. Um, and for you guys, when you guys, when you went in there, I mean, I don't think like you were using actual gear from essentially the second world war II, like a, yeah. your overcoats and like That's right. that yeah. sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, Gosh, what, so what were you wearing? What what weapons well, did you use, and what kind of well, kit did you have when, on as far as yeah, insulation? When we we were tasked to go in there, um, there was no. We had um, the one ten Land Rovers, what we used to call the Pinkies. They were the long wheelbase Land Rover, and they were a good platform, a weapons platform. But they had all gone to A and D Squadron, so we were left with uh, what what we would call a ninety uh, um, Land Rover Defender. And they were, they were next to useless. There was no weapon platforms on them. And we were going in as an eight-man patrol. So we decided not to take the vehicle. Um, we would walk in. Well, we'd fly in, and then we'd walk to our observation point. So our personal kit, uh, our smock, that dated back to 1942. Wow. Uh, useless crap. Um, each man had... Um, basically around about 120 pounds to 150 pounds, depending on what the what radio system they had in. Um, we obviously had our belt kit, which was around about 40 pounds. I had a, a two or three. Some of the lads had uh, 16s and um, a couple of them had the minimis. Um, we then had um, a jerry can each uh, of water and... Um, a, a couple of sandbags with extra rations and the NBC suits because there were still rumors that they had these weapons of mass destruction or they were going to gas us, which it was it was crazy. But it was more the information that we were going in. We broke every single rule that the, the regiment wrote out on SOPs, the standard operating procedures. And we um, there was three patrols. We used two Chinooks to go in. Uh, we we We... We inserted, um, we had one failed attempt. We had to come back because it was a deconfliction of bombing. And then we got in. And again, um, when we got off the uh, the bird and it, it lifted off, um, we realized how cold it was. Um, and Iraq actually was having the worst winter in 30 years. Um, the equipment, as you know, you can't carry 170 plus pounds in soldier. So... We were basically sherpering this kit, like, as in taking it up, dropping it off, walking back, getting it, and then sh ferrying um, different bodies backwards and forwards. And then we got to the um, our selected um, OP point, which um, we'd read off, off a map. And uh, what we found, we were expecting sandy conditions and it was flatbed rock. So it meant we couldn't go underground. Um, we'd, we came across this um, dried wadi bed and it was the sides went up to the desert floor about maybe 15 16 feet one side had an overhang another side had a like a flake of rock that came off in the road that we were supposed to be looking at um it was just a series of tracks so really we knew a scud wasn't going to come down um that road 
But more uh, more interestingly, the next morning or first light, we started looking around. Now, if you can imagine, we, we'd come in from the south into this wadi, we got to the head of the wadi, and then the desert floor went you know, to the north. There was a ridge line running uh, east to west, but on top of the ridge line, um, there was an anti-aircraft position um, quite clearly. And uh, we, we basically tried to establish comms. Now, again, this is in hindsight, um, we couldn't get through, uh, we couldn't establish anything. And we had 17 radios between the eight of us, different types. Um, and uh, one of the signalers, before we deployed, he'd worked out the frequency codes, but he'd worked them out on the Latin long for um, Kuwait. Mm. So we were in northern, well, central, like mm. Iraq. So that's like having your house number without the city dialing code <laughs> ring as much as you want. You ain't yeah. getting through, like, you know. Oh, so um, we were asking to be relocated and um, nothing came through. And then in the afternoon, um, a young goat herder came in and he was probably about two or three hundred feet away from our position. Um, he got into a truck and disappeared. So that night we sent out recce's. And um, all we found was uh, anti-aircraft positions everywhere. We were stuck right in the middle. We didn't know what it was, whether it was troops in reserve or a, a military facility, but we were smack bang in in these um, between these anti-aircraft positions. Now we also knew that the Iraqi officers were reasonable tacticians because we'd had them at Sandhurst teaching them how all the tactics yep. about two years ago. And I'm sure you. <laughs> come across that where you yep. do the training teams we teach them and then the next minute you're, you're having a scrap with them mm -hmm. so that uh that night uh we did the reckeys came back and it was it was freezing cold i mean the temperatures were below zero um during the day and at night um that next day i just spent we spent all the time trying to establish comms and then the um, goat herder came back at about the same time, but this time he came right up onto the, the overhang and he was looking down and he, he saw one of the guys and uh, ran off. So we knew we'd be in compromised. So at this point, I basically um, rigged up a system uh, for the Morse code. And uh, within the British Army, I, I don't know if it's the same for yourselves, you have a guard net, which is like an open net mm -hmm. And um, it's just monitored by a signaler. And I knew Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, we had a base there. They would have a garden net. So I just started tapping away on Morse code. And, you know, like, thank the Lord, um, a guy just came back and he said, yeah, you've got signal strength fives and started tapping back to him. Um, we had a code word, which was turbo. And um, I basically said compromise. He got back to me saying, you know, message, um, clear, uncorrupted, and uh, we thought, right, that's it. There'll be a chopper coming in to pick us up because um, we had a lost comms procedure for 48 hours, and that was still within that window. So we packed all the gear up. We started ditching all the, the rubbish, like the thermal sheeting, like extra rations, things like that, to, to get lighten this load down. And um, we wrapped our heads up with uh, Shemag's, uh, the scarf, the scarves for the listeners. And um, I led the patrol out of the wadi and um, we we were keeping close into one side of the wadi bank side into the uh, left-hand side and trying to keep out of sight of the anti-aircraft positions um, behind us. 
And um, as we were just about to move, we heard the dreaded sound of a tracked um, vehicle. So we we cocked our 66s. We, you know, we were sitting waiting. And um, I can remember again. Well, in fact, if I can I just go back to say one thing. When we got onto them Chinooks to deploy, I, I yeah, I wasn't jittery or anything, but I looked at my sergeant major and I said, this is a one-way mission. If it goes wrong, it's going to go really badly wrong. And that's it. I said, I'm still getting on that helicopter, but this is not right. Anyway. And did you have like a premonition or would you look at the gear and look at the uh, weather I, and say, and just, look at the training and all, everything kind of comes. It was, so was it everything. Everything. So premonition everything was and, wrong. Yeah. Everything oh, wow. was wrong. There was no RV point emergency. There was no, you know, nothing. Everything. We were breaking every SOP in our book. And, but having said that, and you know the feeling, it's like, I want to get into this yeah. scrap. So I'm going, <laughs> yeah. I'm going. Yeah. It's probably the okay. naivety of youth. So back to the, the tracked vehicle and um, what it was, it was um, like a bulldozer, uh, what we would call a bulldozer with a big um, blade yep. on the front. True. He had it halfway up and he was in like a military jacket and he was just peering over the top. Then he saw us and he just started reversing back. Now, Although you're in the desert and you're in a wadi and there's no street signs, these guys, you know, they know the place like the back of their hand and everything else. He disappeared. So we then said, right, let's start making to the um, the pickup point and we should get there at uh, 20 hundred. So as I was leading the patrol out, uh, we were stuck on that left hand side and um, the, the wadi was quite tight, but then it opened up and um, it opened up to probably be a flat plane of about maybe a good 750 feet to 800 feet. On the left side, um, the bank side was very steep, but it was a, a lower elevation to the right hand side, which had a gradual slope, but it, it was a, of a higher elevation. So as we got out there, there was two Iraqis and um, they had military uh, uniforms on and um, they had AK-47s over there, over the shoulder. So I told the guys, I said, just keep moving. And, um, you know, we've got company now. And they started to parallel us um, as we were walking out. And then I, I made that dreaded mistake um, of, um, I thought, right, okay, they can't see our faces. I'm going to bluff something here. So I lifted my left hand, which is an insult unbeknown to me at the mm. time, and and waved to them. As soon as I did that, it kicked off. Um, they started, um, they opened up on us. Uh, round started firing. We returned fire. We dropped them too. Um, but at the same time, the vehicles uh, turned up and guys started de uh, debussing from the vehicles. And then we came under a good um, a, a good uh, rain of uh, fire. Um, it, we were we were doing our drills, pepper pop, pepper potting back, and it got to the point where we realised we couldn't carry our rucksacks. So it was a patrol commander said, "Ditch the rucksacks," and uh, we did. And we were moving backwards, and then um, returning fire, keep moving backwards. And I can remember dropping uh, my rucksack and, and thinking what is in there and there was a, a, a like a personal memento so I went running back for that because I thought I'm not leaving this this around for these uh, guys and uh, got back to the guy got back to the group and um, as we were like going up up the hill you know what it's like when you're under fire your, your brain's thinking different things and everything is either in slow motion or you know it, it time condenses and I could see these like 
mounds of earth lifting up and it, it was a bit what went through my head was they're they're using mortars but somebody isn't taking the pin out and they're not detonating huh. and it's not going to be long before it happens well it wasn't mortars what had happened is the anti-aircraft guns had opened up on us they had level wow. they'd come down at a level and they were like i mean they were they were flying we were in contact for um, it was a minimum of 45 minutes. Um, I was a patrol medic and there was another guy who was a patrol medic um, or a trained medic. And um, I'd obviously lost the med pack in the rucksack. And as as I, well, as I was nearing the, the summit, I, I was that knackered, like tired. I couldn't, I couldn't breathe, you know, from, from the rut, like sprinting backwards and forwards. And I was just looking down at my chest, waiting for, you know, to explode. And I think... It's not giving up, but you just think it's got to happen sometime. Like you know, it, something's going to happen. And as I crossed the, um, the 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 brow of the hill, I was just totally amazed that all the guys were there and nobody being hit. I mean, some of the guys had holes in their smocks and their trousers, and uh, we got we got we shook out. We had our American tackbies and English tackies tackbies. We've been screaming into there, but we didn't get any um any comeback on them and then the um the iraqis started moving towards our position in their vehicles but the guys on foot were staying behind the vehicles and they were slowing down so we decided that we would put a dog's leg in as in head south to make it look like we're heading to saudi arabia then we would head uh, west and then turn north and head to head up to syria mm -hmm. um it was the shortest option, and as the say crow flies, it was going to be about seventy-five miles. Well, as, as things were, it didn't work out that way. But um, um, we started uh, walking at a reasonable pace, and then um, darkness came in, and that's where we broke contact with the Iraqis. Um, we did the dog leg where we turned to the west. Uh, fired across um, about 10 kilometers towards the west and then started heading north. And just before we started heading north, we knew we would actually come to the, the base of that ridge line that had the anti-aircraft positions on there at some point. So I said to the patrol commander, listen, I'm going to walk on my night sight. Now, my night sight was a, a kite sight that fits on a, on a rifle. Uh -huh. um, it wasn't like a head night sight. Right, right. Not like today. But I mean, having said that, that kite sight was the future. You yeah. Know, from, from there. So, and again, the night vision, you, you lose that. So I just stuck it on my eye and I kept just walking. And I, I'd said, I'm going to walk as fast as I can. Just tell the guys, head down and arse up and, and walk. Well, um, I think it was probably an hour and a half of like good, strong tabbing. And um, I got to the base of um, the ridge line and I turned around and I had um, one guy who'd actually collapsed uh, behind me and another guy and um, the other five guys were missing. And this I couldn't cold, understand. Cold or exhaustion? What, what is the first well, thing that went through your... I, well, it was, I was like, where the hell are they now? And um, so basically, um, I, you know, I was thinking, what the hell? One of the guys who had collapsed, what had happened is he had uh, gone down uh, during the firefight because he'd had all his thermal underwear on. And during that firefight, he'd actually sweated himself dry wow. and he was running on empty. And he'd collapsed um, just before we put that dog's leg in. And I'd said to him, 
you just stick on my butt and uh, and keep there, keep looking at it and just keep moving. Because um, again, I was thinking this guy's got, um, you know, hy- hypothermia, but he can't because it's too cold. It's It's got to be hypothermia. Um, and it made no sense because he was drinking loads of water, mm. but he was out of the game. Well, there was him and a lad called Vince Phillips and um, myself. So I immediately ran up to the top of the brow of this um, this ridge line, and it was ex- it was five minutes to zero dark, and um, I uh, got my attack B out, which was an American one, and I knew the pa- the patrol commander had attack the same frequency attack B, and exactly at twelve o'clock midnight, I I called, and there was no response, so I waited till twelve thirty, opened up, no response. And I, th- I just made the decision now, uh, right? There's, it's the three of us and uh, we've got uh, two weapons, so we carry on. So that night, we um, we covered, uh, it was around about 70 kilometers, around about 50 miles. Mm. Um, I mean, our weight was still around about 45 pound, you know, plus the, the weapons. And the ground was very, um, um, like it was just small rocks, but it was hard walking. Uh-huh. And uh, we all blistered our feet, uh, which was going to prove a big problem for me later on. Yeah. Um, so it was about 5 a.m., 5, 6 a.m. Um, the, cl- the, the sky, it was, um, it was still pitch black, but you could see there was a lot of uh, cloud in there. And um, I was starting to get worried because it was gain. It was really flat and uh, there was no cover. And... Um, I came across a, a tank berm, and for the audience that aren't military, a tank berm is a construction of of basically earth um, mounded up on three sides. A tank can come in there, and it has cover, but it can fire out at that side. So th- th- there'd obviously been a tank in there because where its left track had been, it had subsided. So I got the, the guys in, and we lay head to toe in there. And then it, just as first light was coming up, started to look around and um, I could see a small box-bodied vehicle with a large mast. Now, I didn't know if it was a building or a, or a vehicle and I could see the Iraqi soldiers moving around it. And uh, my main concern was, and again, as you know, the, the, the people from that region are very private and go into the, the bathroom. You know, um, they will walk a good distance, just have some privacy, just to, to do something. So I said to the guys, you know, we're going to have to stag on here and watch because this is the only cover all around there. But as it was, within half an hour, um, it started snowing. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And People don't necessarily the, think of Iraq as cold and snowy, no. obviously, but yeah. man, it gets cold out there. I was it there a does. couple winters and it's it can get it's, so it's cold. A, yeah. It, it gets what, really what gnarly. You guys, do you remember if your base layer was wool or if it was a synthetic or, yeah. and then you had cotton over the top of it uniform? Or how no, did, um, we had, um, we had probably t-shirts on. We had our like old, um, uh, desert cam shirts. Um, I had a, a Halley Hansen, like a uh, thermal fleece, uh, like jumper type of thing. And then the thin smock on that, on my trousers, it was them, them useless British cam desert cams. And I'll tell you um, another thing on that. I was pissed off because them pants didn't last five minutes. The material was really cheap and they used to rip. Now we were sharing our base with guys from SEAL Team 6 and we went round just prior to going, and them guys were giving us um, their clothes. 
and you had that really tough material the first um, that rip stop type thing yes well it was the it was heavier duty than the rip stop mm. and it, they lasted and it was good cam and i had a set of them trousers on and my rsm said you're a british soldier get them off oh. i'm thinking you know who gives a shit like you know <laughs> um and it was crazy so that that was going on in the background so anyway we're lying there so it's a combination of a synthetic plus some cotton yes. pants, yeah. tops, all that sort of combination yeah. of stuff that probably wasn't the most well-suited for that environment. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. I mean, we'd lost all our Gore-Tex in our rucksacks and yeah. um, and everything else. So, And do you remember it, what, uh, how, what your loadout was as far as mags for your… Uh, um, I, I had um, I had 10 um, 30s. Uh, I had um, phosphorus, L2s, smoke. Um, obviously, Tacby, small pair of binoculars, uh, escape escape um, tin um, with bits and bobs in there. Um, I'd made the mistake. Admitting this, this is a it was a grave mistake. I'd opted to take more mags in a pouch where I had my small um, bivy bag, my Gore-Tex uh, bivy bag. That must be the note that I have in here. Then it's been, yeah, it's been yeah. since nineteen ninety seven since it, I wrote that. So yeah. you know. Well, I was looking at their mags thinking they're not going to keep you alive. Now, because of my experience, when it started snowing, there was a high wind chill factor. The wind was blowing. But more more importantly, the snow kept changing into rain. And the ditch that we were in kept filling up with water. And it, it probably saved us in terms of these Iraqi soldiers who were close by didn't you know walk uh, over to us. But Vince started showing all the classic signs of um, hypothermia. And um, he was he was going down rapidly. Um, I can honestly say it was the longest day in my life, and I've worked in some of the coldest environments in the world. And and I I, I will say this: um, I wouldn't let anybody move. Um, our SOPs is during the day you don't move. So I said nobody's moving, and I made them stay still. Now I know I've got to live with a, a man's life here. Um, it. Um, it's it, uh, it eighteen hundred. Um, it was dark, and I said, "Right, let's move." Well, when we came to move, um, it was nearly impossible. We'd lost the use of our fingers, our, t- our toes. Um, it felt like you were just crippled with arthritis in your knees, your thighs, your your lower back, and um, trying to stand up was an effort. And again. Um, we tried to move around in the confines of the tank berm to get some movement. But all we were doing um, was actually um, making ourselves um, colder because your body in that state, it basically starts pooling all of the warm blood in your core. And that's why you lose the the use of your fingers, your arms, your legs, because the blood is being sucked up into your core to keep your vital organs going. But by moving quickly and trying to, you know, warm up, um, all of that warm blood starts going to your cold fingers, hands, and then that's making making you even more cold. So it wasn't working. So again, started moving off. My main concern now was um, if we bump into the Iraqis, um, I will not be able to operate my weapon. Can't feel my hands. Um, by this time, the snow and rain had stopped, but there was cloud, uh, high winds, and the moon would come out now and then, and all of a sudden everything would light, light up. It would darken down. And um, uh, at this point, Vince started um, like screaming, uh, making a lot of noise. Um, 
he was showing all the classic signs of, of hypothermia. So I would walk back, um, talk to him. And this is, I mean, without going into detail for the respect of his family, but I would try and G him on in terms of remind him of his family. Um, I would shout at him. I would do lots of different things to see if I could get like some type of reaction. So at this point, um, I said to Stan, who was with me, um, you you and him stay about um, probably about 50 to 100 feet away from me. Just keep me in sight. Don't lose sight of me, but let me get up ahead and I can walk. And if he's making noise, hopefully I'll see the enemy beforehand and then I'll move back and then we'll box round them. So we did that. And um, I'm not really sure how long we'd been walking Um and um, uh, Stan said, um, I've lost contact with Vince. So got back to him and um, the ground, there was um, where the snow had been drifting. Uh, then I would follow my footprints and then I'd get to an area where the snow had blown off and it was flatbed rock. Now, if you imagine your route, say, going from north to south, uh, I would get, you know, enter from the north and head across to the south. And my footprints weren't there. And they were actually over on the east side. So I'd start following there and the, the next thing would happen. And then it it actually, I it just had a light bulb moment that, you know, I was walking in a zigzag myself and I was navigating. And then I realized how bad the hypothermia had got a hold of me. Now, we we I think it probably 30 minutes, 40 minutes backtracking. And that was back to the enemy, back to the storm. And it was me. It was I made the decision. Um that I wasn't going to go back any further and uh, we were to carry on on the route. Now, I know in my heart of hearts what would have happened with Vince is he would have found a hollow in the ground, he would have sat down and he would have had that flush of um, heat. And um, it's a horrible thing with hypothermia. You, um, you start to heat up just before you're going to die. And what you do is you start stripping your clothes off and basically, it, um, you strip your clothes off because you think you're hot. And then within about a minute or so, you're dead. And that's what happened. Now, Vince's body was recovered by the Iraqis, and they were very respectful with him. Uh, they returned his body, and that was put through an autopsy and uh, everything else. And at the coroner's report, he, he predicted Vince died the day before or the day after. He died that night. Um, so we carried on. And um, we seem to come off the high ground into a series of, um, uh, into small wadis. And these wadis were only about three or, or four foot deep. So just, you know, just before first light, we, um, we lay there cuddling one another in. Um, and um, first light came up, the sun came up, but it was still like, you know, blue skies, but not enough to think, I'm comfortable here, but enough to get your fingers moving. Um, we immediately cleaned the weapons off because they were sodden in mud, you know, rammed. So we cleaned the weapons off. And um, we started looking at the map. <clears throat> and because our maps were really aviator maps, there'd been two, um, uh, on, the, on the map, there'd been two pylons, uh, two rows of pylons. And I can remember going under one pylon, but on the map, um, the one pylon was like, say, about 40 kilometers closer to the border. And I predicted that's where we were. 
And uh, so that wasn't bad. You know, it was just probably another two days. Um, that's, that's all right, because we've got no food and uh, no water. So we lay there and uh, sure enough, and again, I'm sure you know, you sat in the middle of nowhere and then the, the goat herder comes out <laughs> of nowhere. In Afghanistan he, still, we learned he, it again. Yeah, exactly. And you know you, you, that you've got hundreds of waddies around you and um, the freaking goats just come and they stopped off at the wadi we were in. And as we were lay there, they, they started to walk up towards us and we just kept down. They walked past us grazing. And the, the, the goat herder, he was a big unit, big lad, uh, probably about <coughs> 20 odd, 25. And um, I started looking and I went, right, if he comes up here, I'm going to drop him. And um, Stan being a gentleman, I would say, he said, no, 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 he can't do that. I went, yeah, I am. If he's coming up, if we tie him up, he'll die anyway. If we if we do him, we've done him, and that's it. If we let him go, he's going to tell the Iraqi forces, and they're going to be on to us. So sure enough, um, he stood up and started walking towards us. And when he stood up, I realized he was a big guy. I'm only 5'10", but uh, Stan's about 6'4". So I said, you grab him, I'll stick him, and uh, we'll drop him, bring him down. And uh, Stan... <laughs> Stan, uh, he said, uh, no, no. He said, that's against the, the uh, rules of uh, engagement and all the rest of them. I'm like, screw the rules of engagement, <laughs> mate. You know? um, so as it was, he jumped up, grabbed him, but protected him and sat him down. And it was the right thing to do, to, to be honest, really. So we're talking. And again, talking to the locals, You, if you say tractor, vehicle or whatever, they'll go, Iwa, Iwa, Iwa. And they have no sense of distance or how long it'll take you. And he kept pointing. And then Stan said, uh, I trust this guy. And I went, you've got to be kidding me. I said, um, we'll keep him here and then we'll leave it uh, at last night. He went, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and see if I can get this vehicle. And I was like, no. And he went, yeah. So he, he took his belt kit off and he, he left his rifle and started walking off. And I'm looking at them and I thought, this is wrong. So I called him back and I said, listen, mate, at least take your rifle, but keep that down by your side. And uh, I said, if you change your mind, slot him and come back. And he went, no, I trust him. He's given me some berries. Um, I'm off. So I said, I'm, I'm here until six o'clock. So basically, um, six o'clock came and, uh, you know, I'm hanging on till five past. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, you know, and he didn't come. So I moved off. Now, what had happened in reality is he'd walked right up until nearly last light. And he'd get into the top of a, um, a valley. And sure enough, there was a White House with a land cruiser there. And uh, the goat herder appointed. And he'd gone down. And as he got to the land cruiser, 14 Iraqi soldiers came out of the um, hut. And he was bagged. He, he, he'd gone. So there was no chance of him coming back. Um, I, um, I uh, started walking. And um, I'd been walking for about 20 minutes. And I looked over my shoulder and there's a set of headlights. And I thought, Jesus, I, you know, he was right, I was wrong. So I ran back, uh, but the first set of headlights were followed by a second set. And um, there were two cars. Um, and, and basically um, there was, they'd, they'd circled the, um, the, the wadi. There was voices, muffled voices, but my um, kite set kept burn, burning out mm. and I couldn't make out what they were. Um, 
they, 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 they moved away. I grabbed all my gear and started running away in the opposite direction. And then they came back on the, on the site. And then there was a contact and basically there was rounds exchanged, but there were all civilians. Mm. I moved off from that point and carried on to where I went under the, these, um, these pylons. And then I ended up on some high ground and there was a village in front of me. Um, I couldn't see the river or the Euphrates, but I could make out a line of, of palm trees. So I got down to the palm trees and sure enough, the river went out in front. But what, what it was, there was a pile, there was piles of brushwood evenly spaced every couple of hundred meters. So I crept down to get water because it, it get now it's like two and a half days since I've had water. And as soon as I stepped in, I went straight up to my waist in like a silt. Now, again, to the to the listener, it might be a big deal, but it's still minus like um, zero and it's still freezing. So I, I threw my belt kit out, my rifle out, and then I had to crawl into a depth on this brushwood, which meant I was soaking all down my front, fill my water bottles up. Then I got back into the wadi system and I got a hollow on the north side of a slope and just took myself in there and I, I just froze. And it wasn't until um, first light came up, um, it hit me that I was by myself. Um, and I don't give a monkeys how hard you are, how tough you are. It, 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 it gets you. And some bizarre, this is really bizarre. And you're going to think I'm a nutcase, but, um, I, I, this thought came out and it was when I was a kid, my mom used to say, if things get on top of you, have a good cry. And I'm thinking I'm sitting there and I'm like <laughs> that. And I, I had a look around to make sure <laughs> exactly. nobody's watching. And I try, I tried to cry, but I couldn't cry. I just, you know, but I burst into laughing thinking you idiot, you know, and I laughed, but you know what? It was that release of tension. Mm. It, it was like a cloud lifting off me. I sat down, I looked at my map. I was still, you know, freezing cold, but I knew this is it. I'm by myself. Nobody's coming to get you. And um, this is where you've got to go. So the hardest thing is lying around for 12 hours, not moving in freezing conditions. Because again, you will you will nod off into sleep for maybe three or four minutes. And then you'll wake up with a judder and you're freezing and shaking violently. So the sleep deprivation had kicked in. My feet were in in, in a bad state. Uh, the toenails had come off. Um, the the all the blisters had turned into open wounds. Um, started walking now that night. But what happened was, unbeknown to me, the the group of five, the other guys, they'd um, they'd getting uh, they'd been captured, and um, they knew that there was eight of us. Mm. They had Vince's body. They had Stan, they had everybody in the patrol. So during their interrogation, they kept saying, you know, where where was I? And um, so they'd, they'd get, they'd deployed all the civilians from the, the villages along the Euphrates and 1600 troops um, were, were covering. But because it was so cold, when I started walking, I would either smell a fire or cigarette smoke, or I would see the fire and then I could stop move back, box them. Now I walked all that that night and I know I would have done 40 kilometers, uh, but I only made 10 on the, you know, as the, mm -hmm. on the map. Right. That next morning I found myself on a cliff face, um, 
which was quite nice in, in terms of I climbed down it and I got into a hollow so it meant I was out out of the wind so I was not warm but I was a lot more comfortable than being in the open and I was looking over a, a village that was on the banks of the um, Euphrates there was a couple of guys fishing no sign of any military so spent the day there moved off again and um, what I was doing was trying to gauge the distance between the Euphrates and where the wadi systems were coming in. Now, the safest option would have been to stay up in the wadis, but that meant I would be cross-graining. So if you put your fingers out, you'd be walking over your fingers mm -hmm. up and down, and that would sap a lot of energy. Also, that night, I saw um, a, a, a road sign, and it said Al-Qayyam, 50 kilometers, and uh, I think it was New Anna, 50 or whatever. So on the map, I could pinpoint exactly where I was. And honestly, I, I, I can remember not well nearly collapsing because I thought I was two days ahead of myself wow. and now I'm two days behind. And so how, how far is it then from that sign to the Syrian border? To your uh, you're, you're talking about uh, 160 uh, kilometers, about 100 miles plus wow. uh, at this point. And um, so you've already gone 75, 100 yeah, about 100 miles. Wow. And um, it took the sails out of me, I must admit. And um, so I was trying to gauge the the distance because obviously the closer to the Euphrates, that's where you're going to bump into the cities, uh, like, you know, the population. And mm -hmm. uh, so I carried on. Um, I got caught out in the open um, at first light. I ended up in a, a culvert on the road. The road was a six-lane highway and it was built up, you know, the sides were built up for the flooding during the wet season. And at first light, I was lying there and just heard the dreaded goat goat bells. And as I looked through the culvert, um, I saw an old guy coming up with his goats, a donkey and a dog. But at this point, there was traffic running along. Wow. Now, the only way I can describe the six-lane highway is like a, a railway embankment. So I lay there or crawled up and the cars were going up above me he came through and i'm guessing because they had the he had the animals the dog just wandered up and they went up into the interior but i knew he'd be coming back at some point so i got into a stream bed and it was dried stream bed yeah. and crawled away from the road but again i was really concerned that if anybody had seen me they would they would bring in the army um so i was lying in this hollow and that day it was just a matter of just lying still and looking and listening and you you know what it's like in the desert you'll hear you know pebbles moving or like brushwood moving and i'm just thinking you know are they are they creeping around me or whatever so did my map study by this time um you know i haven't had food for it's four days um and um and, and very little water now and I knew I had to get more water, so um, but I didn't realize how switched off I'm becoming. And um, started walking that night. I knew I could, like, if I carried on on a certain bearing, I would hit the uh, Euphrates. I could bounce off that and then head to the the border. And um, as I as I was moving, um, it was weird. Um, I knew I was probably about maybe two hundred meters from the river. I could see a, a pumping house and there was a, a faint light coming from that. So as I moved forward, there was an old Iraqi guy in a, in a blanket mm. and he had a, like a, a paraffin burner. So I pulled back and the next thing that happened was it, it was like a Second World War air, air, air raid siren that went off. 
So I hit the deck. I thought I'd like maybe tripped something or whatever. And as I got down, I got the night side up and I could see these large towers with interlinking what looked like wires around them. And then um, I could see all the anti-aircraft positions around it. And I was sat in the middle of it. And, I, and it, it was only because I'd, I'd switched off and I was walking and I hadn't been constant, not concentrating, but, you know, probably just my mental state. So I'm lying there and then it was more sirens came on and basically everything quietened down. Lights went down, um, everything settled. In reality, what was happening is as the coalition aircraft were entering Iraqi airspace, they would alert every important facility to stand to. And I, again, I thought I was in a like a signals type of facility with these wires. In actual fact, I was in a chemical plant that um, they were trying to produce yellow cake. Uh, now, this is quite important from an American point of view. When I when I finish, if you can remind, remind me of this, I will. So, as um, as it settled, I was again night side up. I would approach, and you would get the silhouette of the anti aircraft um, guns against the skyline, and then you'd look down, you'd see the sandbags, and I would look over. And there'd be four bodies in sleeping bags with blankets over their heads and everything. Now, if they had had a dog, I would have been compromised. On the other hand, the the cold had killed one of my colleagues. It was killing me, um, but it was also saving me because these guys less like the cold even less than <laughs> we do. Yeah. Um, so I picked my way through this place, and then I came across um, a stream bed, and... Um, it was running clear. It had the 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 base of it was clear. Um, it just looked like a spring, and that's what I had in my mind. This is spring water, um, so I filled both water bottles from it. Didn't didn't uh, drink it um, just because of what was going on around me. Um, went through a vehicle lager point where a holding area, and it was all full of um, military vehicles. Um, and I ended up looking at a building, and it had a big mural painted on the on the side of Saddam Hussein. Um, there was movement with vehicles coming and going, and then a kid came out of um, out of nowhere, and I moved around the vehicle uh, around the uh, the building, and um, he came on top of my position. Uh, I dropped him, and um, and then discarded him, and then carried on. But then I got jammed between um, a vehicle VCP, a vehicle checkpoint, and an anti-aircraft position. And I knew I couldn't go back into this facility. The only place was to go static. And on this, it was the same highway, but the culvert was the size of a 45-gallon um, drum, but it ran all the way through. So I picked the dirtiest one and I got in there. Now, we've all been, you know, in the jungle or on ops where you haven't washed for, you know, several weeks or a month and you have a certain type of smell. And we all know what roadkill smells like. And I could smell that on me. Um, I had bed sores on, on my legs and back and arms. If I squeezed my fingernails, there was pus like green discharge coming out. My feet, I couldn't take my boots off. Um they were in a bad way. And when I was sucking um, in my lips, my, my gums were bleeding all the time. So I thought I'll cheer myself up and have a drink of that fresh water. So as I took a drink of it, it was like putting battery acid in your mouth or lemon juice. Do you know right away? Yeah, I, 
something no I, no I, I couldn't compute because this water was pure it looked um pure. it was running clear yeah no smell pure. nothing not a thing just wow. pure mineral water and i was that confused i thought it was something that had gone off in my water bottle like mm -hmm. you know the old steri tabs or something so i I, did, I tried to take a bit more and it was burning my mouth and i discarded it and i got the other water bottle out thinking you know it'd be all right so as i took it exactly the same and i how much did I, you I drink could, how many like uh, two gulps, mouthfuls two yeah two gulps and it burnt uh, all the way down yeah and um um i it just couldn't couldn't work out but, but again it was another knock to the morale and mm -hmm. every single day there was something that would put you down that's a big so, one right there i mean at what point do you realize that it might be a chemical or do you think it's just tainted water I, I just tainted water i just couldn't couldn't compute because no. in my mind i was seeing this clean water and i it just wouldn't compute right. so that that next uh, night um the um the it, it looked like it was going to rain and the visibility wasn't that great so i could see the vcp point and i pushed towards the the anti-aircraft position and got through now i've been walking for about 500 about 500 feet and then all of a sudden there was just this massive flash and i thought i'd been caught in an ambush light yeah. so as i hit the, the ground the boom went on afterwards and it was the americans bombing this plant now the plant wasn't a signals plant it was a chemical plant and this is where they were trying to make yellow cake and that Uranium. water it come yeah and that had come from their reactors, the shit that I've been trying to, to drink. Now, quite ironically, when I got out- so You find all this out I, later. Yes, well, I found out um, from, from the embassy in Damascus, but I ended up having to go straight up to A Squadron Delta because they were flying in to do the bomb um, assessment, damage assessment. But at this point, it was just a signals camp yeah, to me. Right. I didn't realize, and I didn't know why they were bombing it. Um, so I carried on, but this at this point now, I'd say I'm at my my lowest physically. Um, I I was hallucinating. Um, I was I was seeing vis visions of things. I was walking, but I knew I was on a on a heading to hit the the border. And at some point during that night, um, it um, I was walking and. The only way I can describe it was like the sense of having electric shock in the back of your head and somebody has sucker punched me in the back of the head and it knocked me down onto the onto the desert floor. And it was that severe. I actually turned around to see who had punched me. It, wow. it just felt like somebody punched me and there was nobody there. And then I, I got myself up and I was walking and then it happened again. But this time I came to on the desert floor and I was talking by this time I'm talking to myself. And in fact, that's another point. Um, every decision I made, I used to talk to myself and ask the questions and all of this uh, stuff. And I got up and I was thinking, you know, that's a stupid place to try and sleep and you shouldn't sleep. You know, you're not going to wake up. Carried on and um, ended up in a like an area where they'd been burning rubbish. But then I could see the the line of the what I ho hoped was the Iraqi Syrian border. And I sat there and all I wanted to do was get over that border. And obviously our, 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 our procedures are, you sit and watch it, you know, mm -hmm. you spend time just watching it. And sure enough, after about 40 minutes, a vehicle came from my left and I could see the headlights and it was rolling down the border. And he stopped just off my axis and two um, obviously Iraqi soldiers got out 
And the, what the Iraqis were doing is putting mobile OPs all the way from um, Jordan right up to Turkey and just moving guys so they had eyes on different parts of the border at any one time. And do you think that was that specifically well, I, I, for you or was that... Um... No, I think I think that was just a thing they were doing okay. um, from that side. And I don't even know if it was smugglers or whatever. But um, anyway, um, I got to the the border and it was um, razor wire and it was them big meter, you know, like spools. Okay. And But it was Constantina. There was... Yeah. Three spools on the bottom, two and one on top. Yeah. And if if you haven't if you haven't uh, had any uh, anything to do with razor wire, if you get amongst it, it's going to hang you up and shred you. So I then started moving away to my left because I knew there was an Iraqi town to to my right on, on the Euphrates. And sure enough, the Arab factor kicked in, where whoever laid this um, barrier, they didn't know what they were doing, and where the spools had come to. They'd fixed them, but they'd actually, if you look down, if you imagine looking down on a plan of an H, each each um, uh, end of an H and then the middle bits was strengthened by pickets. And they had strengthened these pickets with barbed wire to, to hold up the spools of, um, of razor wire. When all they'd done is made a bridge for me to like climb over. Wow. So I managed to get my white man over, my belt kit over, and then climbed up this and then shimmied over, got to the other side. But at that point, um, there wasn't like a tank trap or that them large ditches. And I, I was wondering, you know, is this the is this a false border right. or whatever? So I just carried on walking. And I mean, I was I was in I, my head was that screwed. I, um, I I was seeing visions of my daughter. She was talking to me. I was trying to put my hand out to grab a hold of her. She was dressed in what she was dressed in at the Christmas before I left Hereford. Um, and then she would disappear. I don't know what I walked past, you know, the left or right of me. Um, and then I'll come to, and then something happened and I woke up first light and I'd broken my nose. I passed out wow. against this wall. And, um, as I came to, obviously my, my face was all bloodied and that, um, I could see a, 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 a small building on the horizon and there was smoke coming from there. Um, at this point, I was probably 24 hours from dying, if not sooner. Now, one thing I, I'm, I, I believe you, you can go, a human can go 10 days without food. But once you go, like, say, three days without water, you, you, you're, you're, you're finished. And I've spoken to medical experts and they said the electric shocks in my head were, my brain was drying out. Wow. It was, you know, all, all the fluids and it was severe like dehydration. Well, anyway, I got to this house. There was a young lady. Um, she had like an upturned wok. She was making bread on a fire. There was an old man leaving with some goats. And a young guy came out of the building. And uh, I just said, um, you know, Syria, Syria. And he didn't really understand. And I said, Iraq, Iraq. And he pointed and he said, Iraq, Iraq. And this is CD, CD here. And I was like, thank God for that, you know. And he could see the state I was in. So he, he ran and got a big silver bowl of water, which I, I drank. And he brought me into his into his room. And there was a, like a paraffin uh, boiler uh, burner there. And he gave me a, a, a small glass of hot sweet tea. Mm. And I'll tell you what, it just hit me like a chemical. And it was just like, bang. And it's the first time I've had a hit, whether it be caffeine or sugar. I was like, boof. And it just hit me. And I was right, okay, I need to see a policeman. I need to get in. And um, I started end up like doing some drawings on on um, on a piece of paper. Um, I'd, 
I, I, I needed to see my feet to see what state they were in. So I said, can I wash, like did a drawing of washing my feet. And he was like, yes. So I took my boots off, peeled my socks off, and then I could see all the wounds on my feet and they were in, in bad order. Now, if I, if I just go back without making it you know, too much of a deal, it got to the point where when I was walking in the latter stages, um, I would sit down and rest. And then when I took the pressure off my feet, it was orgasmic. It was just like, oh my God. Like, But then when I had to stand back up, it was too painful. So it got to the point on the last 24 hours of being in Iraq, I would rest on my rifle. So I didn't like take the numbness out of my feet. Anyway, so he got an upturned dustbin lid and he poured water on my feet, dabbed them. I got my socks back on, boots on, stripped my belt kit down, put it into a bag, stripped my two or three down into a bag. And because we didn't, I didn't have a pistol, you know, mm. I, I could have took that down my trousers because again, I'm in a foreign, foreign country now. I haven't gone through passport control and I'm tooled up. And um, so we started walking into town as we were coming to the outskirts of the town, a guy went past with a lot of hay. He was a camel farmer. He spoke broken English. And he stopped and he started talking and he said, um, you know, where are you going? And I said, listen, I'm a pilot. Uh, I've crashed my aircraft. I need to get to the police. And he went, yeah, okay. So he said, I'll give you a lift in. So the three of us are sitting in the vehicle, got to the first town or the, the first house in the town. And he stopped and this Arab came out in a black dish dash. They said something and the young kid started to get out of the vehicle and he looked, he had fear in his face and he was frightened. And I looked at him and he, he walked off. So as we're driving into town, this guy started touching my bag and saying, your weapon, your weapon. I'm like, there's no weapon. There's nothing there. And then he started saying, uh, my cousins um, are Iraqis. Well, you know that region, the Ambar region, just uh, because there's a border right. there, they don't give a monkeys whether they're Sy Syrian or Iraqis. They're all cousins. So he started saying, um, you go back to Iraq. And I went, no, I'm not going back to Iraq. I need to see a policeman. We pulled into a gas station. Um, there was a, a young lad filling um, uh, diesel um, into a can. This guy, the driver, shouted over to him. He came up. He didn't look at me. He just looked straight down at the bag and then ran off to the back of the garage. And I knew it was going to kick off. So I grabbed my bag and I'm getting out the truck. This guy's like got a hold of my arm. So I drag him over the old chair and I slam the old door on his head and he kindly let go of my arm and I grab my bag and I'm starting to run down the street. Wow. Well, at, at this point, I'm looking over my shoulder and I can see the young kid with about five or six of his mates coming at me. They're making all this noise and then people from on the other side of the road, they're starting to close in on me. And then I'm thinking I'm running like a, you know, a 16 year old. And I look behind and I probably had a 70 year old guy jogging behind me. <laughs> he was like, you know, running in yeah. slow motion. And again, through sheer luck, as I came around this corner, they were, they were onto me. And there was a guy with an AK 47. And I just said, police, police. And he got me into this, into this compound and he, he kept everybody behind. I was taken into a room and then. Basically, I had, um, like, we had a, that password, Turbo, and they said, right, you know, who are you? And I said, listen, I'm a medic. I was on board a helicopter. The helicopter crashed. We were going in after a downed air crewman, and I've just been wandering around for a bit. There was, there was, a, there was a long time waiting around. Um, there was a couple of things happened in the, in the room, but it was, like, boring. I mean, 
So what happened was I was called into another room where they dressed me up as an Arab, put me a dish dash on and stuff like that. Nobody told me what they were doing. Basically, they marched me out to a truck between two guys. I saw all my kit going onto the back of the pickup truck. And then they put me in between these, the driver and the passenger, but they taped everything up. And I was asking them, you know, what's happening? Do you have any food or anything? Nothing. We drove uh, for some time and um, we ended up in a, like a large valley, an open valley. And as we were going along the highway, um, we, there was a, a, two cars that ended up being two S-Class um, Mercedes, the old, old type, and some outriders. And there was a group of them behind the, um, the rear car. And one of them was mucking around with a pistol. And as we pulled up and stopped, they blindfolded me, dragged me out, and then ran me up and then kicked me down. And then I, I know it was the guy with the pistol. He came around my side. He pushed my head down and he banged the old pistol into my head. And you know what? We all say you want to be a hero and run or fight and stuff like that. I just I looked down and I went, I was so annoyed with myself for handing myself over to these guys. And I thought, this is why they've, they've covered me up. They're, they've done everything. They're going to execute me and bury me here. And then the next thing, I'm, I'm waiting for the, the, the shot. And um, next thing is I'm getting lifted up and bundled into the back of one of these Mercedes. All they were doing is having a joke. Anyway, so we went off and uh, started driving. And I said to them, can you take this blindfold off? I can, you know, I can't breathe here because this is the warmest I'd been. So I was aware that there was a guy to my to my left, there was the driver and then the passenger. Everything again was taped up in the cars. I could see the lead Mercedes and then the outriders. And then the, the passenger came over, he took my ID discs off me, my knife, my notebook, my watch, other bits and pieces. And then that was another thing I was thinking, if I'm going to safety here, why are they taking this stuff off mm. me? Anyway, Again, cut a long story short, we drove forever and then we ended up on this highway and I could see this massive um, motorway sign and they knew what was on that sign so they allowed me to see it and all it said was Baghdad and then they turned over and went, yep, we're Iraqis, you're going to Baghdad, you're a prisoner. I thought it obviously tricked me and then I'd been, you know, I'm going to Baghdad. So what I did at that point and this is probably the only advice I can give any serving soldier if you're in this position is what you do is you start running through what's going to happen to you. And what I, that's what exactly what I did. I thought, all right, we're going to end up uh, in a compound. The door's going to open. You're going to get dragged out. You're going to, they'll start beating you up. They'll start kicking you, punching you, you know, whipping you with the, the rifles. You're going to be dragged into a building or downstairs into a cell. Then you'll get your interrogation. I just kept telling myself, running it through, running it through my mind. So it wasn't going to be a fright. It wasn't going to be that. And it would give me a bit of time to compose myself. So, you know, you, you, you know, you didn't have this, they didn't have the surprise factor. Again, that signpost is on a highway and it goes back to biblical times. And they were having another joke, but my sense of humor had, had gone. And <laughs> it was just like, you know, so anyway, nightfall came, we pulled up at the edge of a city as we pulled up, I was aware that there was another car in front. This guy in a suit came and these three characters started to adjust their dress, switch the radio off, cigarettes out and all the rest. The passenger got out, this guy got in. He barked orders at these guys who were clearly frightened of him. 
he all my ID discs um, and stuff like that had been taken off me. Lent over, and he said, "Obviously, this is yours." I went, "Yes." He said, uh, it, he, passed, "He passed it back to me." So I'm putting it in my pockets, and he said, "It won't be long now." So we ended up in a comp- military compound, pulled up to the entrance, and um, basically, um, when they, when I tried to get out, my my knees had swelled up, my ankles had swollen up. So he barked at these two guys, and they like lifted me up and nearly carried me up a set of stairs past a guy in a, a like a military suit with a red cap at a desk into a set of lifts and the lift went up and the lift doors opened and there's a guy in a like a Savile Row suit um, and a, another guy uh, his interpreter now this the, the guy in the suit was the head of the secret police wow. and uh, he went uh, welcome to Damascus and um, he said please come in so as I'm walking in they obviously smelt me um, <laughs> Because he'd offered us a chair, he said, uh, "Please take a seat." And my my butt didn't touch the chair; it was like lifted off, and I was taken through his offices. And um, I went; it was his bathroom. And the interpreter said, "This is my my boss. This is his private bathroom." And the boss is changing a, um, his razor blade. He's running a bath, and um, he, they said, "Please just sort yourself now." So I stripped off. I had a bath. Then a second bath, which was a painful experience. Trust me, um, I shaved. And that's when I weighed myself and I'd lost 38 pounds in body weight during the seven days. Then the next thing was a set of white, um, old-fashioned white underpants comes through the door with a vest. (laughs) So I'm putting this on. Then this young kid comes in. He starts taking my measurements. (laughs) He disappears. And the interpreter comes in and he said, uh, can you tell me who you are? And I said, well, listen, I was a medic. Uh, we were going in for a downed pilot. The helicopter crashed. I said, I'm, I've got no experience. I've been wandering around the desert for three days and I ended up in Syria somehow. I said, it probably just good luck. Um, now, I'm lying to the secret police. Right, right. These guys probably knew but, yeah. more about me, but they didn't. They didn't correct sure. me. Nothing. I've got white foss in there. I've got the two or three. I've got the kite site. Everything. <laughs> they didn't say anything. Yeah, yeah. So come back through, and I got back into the living room, and um, in something TV's else besides on. a vest and and uh, white underwear. They give you something uh, oh, else. No, by, oh yes, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> at this point, at this Just point, with visuals the, there. Yeah, sorry. This point, the young kid comes back with a suit and a shirt and tie and, and, and uh, shoes. But they'd seen my feet. So they called in a doctor from downstairs. He, By the time he'd finished dressing, dressing my feet, the suit came in, shirt, tie, put it on. And a, a, another thing that went through my mind, I thought, God, I hope this isn't for a, um, a press conference because right. my cover is going to be blown here. But it was. We, I got it back into his living room. TV's on there. It was CNN that had playing. And I'm thinking, has the war started? And it hadn't. You know, has Israel been drawn in? It hadn't. And then they said, would you like something to eat? I went, yeah, okay. So they'd had a a feast prepped around the corner. I sat down. I took one piece of meat, and it just lodged in the back of my throat. My stomach had totally shrunk. But I was drinking plenty of fluid. But these guys were super polite. When I stopped eating, they did. And they came around. And we had one of them uncomfortable silences where – he said, um, do you want to see some Syrian nightlife? <laughs> and I went, well, with my feet, you know, yeah. I can't really walk can't and dance. this, that and the other. And he went, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well I, sh- well, I should really go around to the British embassy if that's okay. And he went, if you want to do that, that's fine by me. What he did is he gave me a card and uh, he said, "You, if you have any problems in, in Syria, you ring this number immediately. So anyway, 
long story short, gets to the embassy. I basically crop pop up. They didn't believe who I was. So, you know, I said, get on to High Wycombe, which is the, you know, the, the British Army's like command post. Tell them Turbo, one of Turbo is out um, and I'm here. Da, 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 da. Now, throughout my escape and evasion, I thought the other five guys um, would have escaped. Mm. And throughout every every day when I was lying up, I was thinking them lucky guys will be back at the base and this, that and the other. Well, we got down. The embassy was more of a chargé d'affaires where it wasn't accommodation. And the, these two, or the ambassador and um, the military attaché, were staying in a hotel. Mm. When we got to the hotel, um, I had socks on. The blood was coming out of my socks because I couldn't put the shoes on they gave me. And uh, the rule in Syria is if you don't have a passport, you don't get a room. Manager's like, no way is he getting a room. So we spent 15 minutes arguing about this number on the card. And then we eventually phoned. The secret police turned up. The, the interpreter came to me and he said, you're going to be asked to sign the register. He said, just sign it in the name you can remember. I looked <laughs> over my shoulder. These guys in leather jackets have got the old manager up against the wall. He comes across, said, please, sir, stay at my hotel. Now, I could have sworn on the Bible that during those seven days and eight nights, the first time my body was between two clean sheets, I would sleep for a week. I got into bed and um, immediately the phone went and they said, um, what happened to the emu? Now, the emu was our encryption device mm. that went on the radio, and that's the bit you have to destroy mm. before you kill yourself. And um, I said it was destroyed. But what it, did, what it did tell me was nobody else had gotten out. And that really freaked me out. Um, I can remember just looking at the ceiling. And... Um, it was just like, you know, where are they? Because I knew nobody was following me out. Nobody was walking behind me. And um, it was like, Jesus, you know, there can't, can't be seven guys dead. And um, I couldn't, the next day, um, I, uh, I went back, got a passport, but they wouldn't let me leave the country because I didn't have the incoming stamp in it. So I had to go back to the secret police. Do you have anybody from the, the consulate there with you? Yes. Or? Yeah, yeah. They, they came with me then. I ended up being flown to northern Cyprus and then crossed the border into southern Cyprus and then picked up one of the Hercs that was refueling. Jeez. Got back to Riyadh and then from Riyadh, I got back to our um, forward operating base. And as soon as my butt touched the forward operating base, they said, you've got to go up and see. Um, it was General Wayne Downing. Mm. He was a great guy. Yeah. He was a brilliant guy. He, 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 I sat with him, told him the story. Wow. And you know what? First time I've seen an officer show humility. He said, what did the doctor say? And I went, I haven't had time to see the doctors. I came straight to see you. And he went, he felt, he said he was really embarrassed. And he said, right, we've got some go faster surgeons here. I want you to speak to them before you speak to the squadron. If you please, will you please speak to the squadron? I went, absolutely, let's do that now. So spoke with Air Squadron and that they went in to do the damage assessment. And sadly, they had a contact and one of the lads was killed um, on that on that site that I was in. Um, and then got back and then basically. I mean, my that was my conflict over because um, it took six weeks to get, say, the, the physical signs off my body, but um, it, it, it slightly longer to put weight back on and, and, and various other things. And and basically, um, that was that, really. Um, when did you fly back to, uh, to the UK and what? Uh, it was uh, two months later. Two months later. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't let me go because what had happened was That's all of the, 
they, they, they because there was the the patrol was missing and they thought they were all dead. They didn't want me going back uh-huh. uh, back to back there, so they kept me out for opsec. Now, what had happened to the other guys? Um, a lad, a young lad called Bob Consiglio, he sacrificed his life to save four members of the patrol. It was confirmed by each other pair that he 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 returned fire for forty minutes with his minimi, and then he was shot in the head um, and then shot in the thigh. Um, uh, uh, Stan, who'd left me, he was captured by the Iraqis. He he ended up in prison, and three of the other lads ended up in prison. And one of them had swam over the Euphrates. Well, two of them had swam the Euphrates. But um, a lad called Legs Lane, as soon as he got out the water, he was dead within half an hour of hypothermia. So we lost two guys to cold injuries, uh, one guy to gunshot wounds, and one guy was shot, uh, wounded. Um, and then the rest were released uh, via the Red Crescent uh, and then got back to Hereford. And the only good thing I can say that came out of that patrol was I was then sent uh, to a unit called for, uh, Forward Projection, and I rewrote our, all our SOPs so it could never happen again um, to a guy. So there was a procedure. So if somebody was on the run, they could track him down. Because again, this was before personal locators, you know, sat sat phones, yeah, and all smaller the rest. GPSs. I mean, yeah, back yeah, then yeah. you had these I mean, gigantic ones. I don't know if you guys yeah, had them with you, but they were like the size yeah. of a radio. You know, yeah, and not a regular I mean, radio for people in, listening, a military radio, which hasn't changed radio. in yeah. like a hundred years. Well, you know, yeah, that's encased in steel. But, yeah, but <laughs> yes. almost. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So um it um so no, the only decent thing that came out, we rewrote uh, SOPs. Um, but as it was, it you know, it was gonna they weren't gonna really matter because as soon as the second gulf kicked off, technology had had raced past us and um and that was it. Um, when did you start feeling in, the effects of that uh, of the of the chemical water you drank? Did you know was that well, in your head the rest of the time you were moving throughout, uh, well, getting into Syria and traveling back to Saudi Arabia, and then like, are you thinking about? Uh, well, that? Okay, I've got I've got an I've got a funny story, and it's really embarrassing on my point. So when I got out and I was in, sitting in the embassy, and I described this plant, um, the, the ambassador who was the spy, mm. he said, "No, that's a chemical plant, and that's where they're trying to produce yellow cake." So I said, well, I drank this stuff. And he went, you need to be tested really badly. Now, once I was with the uh, the Syrians and they gave me that suit, um, I'm cutting around, but I started getting like this blue stuff seeping from my skin. And I'm thinking, shit, what's inside of me? And it was coming out of my hands, my arms, my leg, my back and everything. And, you know, I could wipe it off and it was coming back. So I'm really panicking at this point. So I, I then get into Northern Cyprus, get down. And I ended up staying on a garrison for eight hours waiting for the Herc to take me back into the Middle East. So I spoke to this officer, an RAF officer, and I said, is there any um, doctors on on site? And he said, yes. I said, can you get them here? So I got this doctor and I said, listen, um, what I'm about to tell you, you can't, it's got to stay with you. So I explained everything, what I drank and that. And I said, I've got this blue stuff seeping through my, my body. And I said, it's coming through my pores. And he went, all right, okay, he checked my circulation. He said, you need blood tests and everything else. So an hour before um, I was due to get on the Herc, um, they said, do you want to have a wash, a shower before this flight? So I did. So I, I, I stripped off, uh, washed, 
put the suit back on, put my hand in my pocket, pulled my hand out of my pocket and it was blue. It was a cheap suit and all the dye was coming out on my hands hilarious. and legs and back. That's <laughs> it's just, Well, you know what? I was so embarrassed I couldn't tell anybody. Uh, just that's great. Shut. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, but what, what happened was um, um, about, uh, about a few weeks later, I started getting this red patch on, on my forehead. Yeah. And then my skin would go so thin, it would start bleeding. And then that patch moved, you know, this is like over a period of several years, it moved to my my cheek and then my cheek would start bleeding. Then it moved to my chest. Now I had tests where uh, they they put probes in me and everything. And the surgeon, typical of the army, they said, um, no, we never found anything. Here's some aspirin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But (laughs) the surgeon said... um, (laughs) He said, do you, uh, he said, do you have children? And I went, yeah, I've got a daughter. He said, are you planning on having any more? I went, yeah, definitely. He went, I wouldn't. And I said, well, what have you found? And he went, we haven't found anything. And I thought, yeah, right. Mm. But yeah, I have this thing that comes out. They knew I had a damaged liver, da- damaged kidney, a blood disorder. Wow. My gums in my mouth had receded. Um, and then that that thing just moves around me. But it 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 actually comes out bad when I'm stressed, Um it comes out and it stays for a while. But I think the time, I've had enough time between me now now and then. I think time's a great healer in terms of, you know, say from whether your mental point of view or physical point of view. And, um, yeah, uh, that, that was it really. And uh, I got back. I must have been all right because I ended up uh, being sent out to Zaire, I think about four months later, to evacuate the embassy. And then I bumped into two of the guys from A Squadron who were in that initial briefing. And, you know, they saw me and they were like, Jordy, how are you doing? And I'm like, have we met? Because oh. that's how much of a head, wow. you know, my head was off. But them guys were were, were really good. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a good time. Oh, my gosh, that's incredible. <laughs> What, um, now did you have anything on you that whole time? Uh, any, as far as like an E&E type kit with uh, either gold or silver or cash yes. or we, something like yes, that? Yes, we had, we had 20 sovereigns, gold sovereigns. I lost mine officially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's happening a so, lot here with, uh, with people's yeah. guns in the new administration. Getting lost. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <laughs> no, we had gold sovereigns. Um, we had a, a silk scape, a map, uh, mm. that was sewn into the trousers. Um, I'd had a standard, uh, survival pack, but it just had the button compass and razor blades. Nothing because you know how hostile that environment is in the winter, nothing grows. And it, it would have been too much of a risk to try and rob somebody or could to go to a house. So I just went, you know, stay away from everybody um, and just leave as little sign as possible. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a hard place to survive, I think, because it is so barren yeah. and you're open to the elements. Um, and for people that are listening, you know, so you, this is seven days from insertion and you're, you've essentially moved, run, uh, maneuvered, patrolled 300 kilometers to the Syrian yeah. border in yes. some of the most, uh, the, the roughest conditions that you can, you can be moving about in while being hunted, uh, by an enemy who knows that you are, yeah. you are, you are there. Well, the, the, you know what the interesting thing was, it wasn't the Iraqis that were the problem. It was, um, it was well, the weather, it was nature. And as a human being, if you're ill prepared or you don't have the equipment, it's difficult and it'll catch you out. And as I said, the, the, them two lads that died of hypothermia were well-trained SES soldiers and it, it took them, you know, um, and, and, and not in a particular nice way. But the only, the only other thing is, I think, you know, 
British American soldiers, we have a, a resourcefulness about us and we're used to the outdoors. And I sometimes w- worry about our youngsters who are joining the military mm-hmm. because when I was a kid, a punishment for me was to be brought in from outside where I'd be playing in the woods, in the fields, and you you pick up things that you don't realise you're picking up. But now I think youngsters, as a punishment, are kicked out of the house away from the computer to go outside, and it's, it's nearly a role reversal. But again, there is the argument that we're using a lot more technical equipment, and these guys are really sharp on that. But there is that balance of of never forgetting the basics, um, the basic field craft mm-hmm. things that we're taught, you know, when you join the army um, and things like that. I might get this yeah. a little bit uh, a little bit off, but I think in, in the North Atlantic World War One, I, I think that was the birthplace of what's called Outward Bound here in the United States, which I think started over in yes. the UK. And what they were yeah. finding was what that. Uh, these these sailors, merchant marines, uh, people that were you know hit by by U boats and that sort of thing. The younger ones were expiring of exposure, not the older ones, and that went against yeah. what people would thought. They well, we think the older people would be more susceptible to this cold and, and that sort of thing. And what they came up with was no, because the older people have been tested. They've been tested. They've been put through the ringer. They're more resilient because they have this life mm-hmm. experience. Um, and so yeah. that outward bound started to give younger people, put them in these tough situations outside, uh, learn some of that that field craft, learn some of that resiliency through overcoming adversity um, to realize, hey, what the human body can take, what the human spirit uh, can take. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, that's exactly feeds back it's, into it's exactly just what simple. you said. Yeah, it's just simple things that you probably wouldn't even think of. You know, it's understanding, say, like the wind, um, that's going to sap you. It's going to rob you of any 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 heat that you have. So you get yourself out of the wind in a shelter. You a north a north sided slope. You're always going to be in shadow. So if you think of the basic things of why things are seen, shape, shine, shadow, movement, you know, and all of that, it's like you get into that hollow. It's going to be rough because it's going to be cold. But nobody's going to or you stand less chance of of being seen. The other thing, movement. You don't move. You lie there. It's going to be rough lying for 12 hours on bedrock, freezing cold, but nobody's going to catch your eye. You know, um, silhouette, you get into that hollow ground. Um, But no, I think the desert, whether it be in the summer, which, you know, again, nobody moves, or the winter, it's really harsh. I mean, I love being in the jungle. And my last two years in the SES was spent as an instructor, um, selecting and training guys. And I used to love the jungle because I knew I was guaranteed uh, a good six hours sleep. Um, I knew I could step two meters off like a ridgeline and I'd disappear. I could hide. I felt safe. Uh, But I would see students coming in and some of them would suffer from claustrophobia Mm. because all they saw was that green curtain in front of them. You know, they think there's something hiding around every corner that's going to bite them or sting them. Um, you're either walking uphill or downhill, but that makes no difference. Or, and you're always going to be wet. If, if you can accept the jungle, I, I think it's a great place to be. Um, and a great, a, a great, it's a great level of the jungle. Um, but again, working with it, it I, and I just love it. Oh, you know? That's amazing. What? And were you aware when you were uh, out there, were you aware that there was some someone in World War II in SAS, uh, uh, soldier went through something not quite. Yeah, Jack Sil- yeah. Jack Silto. Did you know that, mm. uh, that back then? 
I did, yeah. I did. Did you but think I'll about that? I, no, I didn't. Okay. Honestly, I was thinking. I wasn't thinking. I've got to bust his record, but <laughs> well, not, not, not in those terms. <laughs> but more so, like, but, hey, someone has gone through something like this before. Yeah. No, I, I, I knew all about them, um, them guys, um, and and the walks Jack did. I'll tell you what was weird though. Um, when I was trying to, you know, like lying up, um, I would go into these vivid dreams and they'd probably last no more than maybe one or two minutes, but it was, I'm sure it was a fail safe thing. And it was so lifelike. I was surrounded by the squadron and I could hear individuals talking and laughing and, and you could get like this warm feeling and you know what used to kill me when I opened my eyes and there was nobody there because it was that like life, it was like, you know, there were they, I could hear the voices and uh, you would wake up and you were by yourself. And it was nearly like somebody was trying to punish you or torture, you know, torture you um, with hope. Amazing. Yeah. And so it was, gosh, I have so many questions I want to ask you about all this stuff, but, uh, but I know we're, yeah, we're, we're already over time. Um, so when I was so in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, I thought about this book a lot. I thought about your experience a lot. Um, and some of that was because when like pictures, when I, when I'm first there in Afghanistan or whatever, I have a lot of kit on. And then as you go, I go through mm-hmm. pictures of my multiple deployments downrange. I get a little bit thinner each time and, uh, and yeah. kit wise, like a little bit less, I'm yeah. taking a little bit less, you know, in and out of vehicles, you just learn that, you know, mobility is so, so important. And, uh, mm-hmm. what, what I did think a lot about when it came to the E and E side of things and what I was going to carry and what I wasn't going to carry, I thought Chris Ryan ran to Syria. I'm like, my getaway sticks, I look at my legs, like these are my, this is my E&E kit right here. Yeah. My getaway sticks, my, my legs, like I've always been a pretty good runner. I'm like, Chris Ryan ran to Syria. I'm like, I have my compass. I know which direction Syria is or wherever I'm going to go. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to head off and I'm going to do a, it's like an endurance race at this point. And that's my, that's what I'm doing because I thought, and I thought of you and this experience. Well, I think after, you know, after coming out and we looked at it, it, kit, there is definitely, um, a, a, a thing of having that grab bag on your main rucksack or your ruck. Um, so you can grab it. It's got your, a bivy bag would have saved both of those guys' lives. A bit, and, you know, they'll say, you know, 48 hours of rations, but you can break it down, you know, just a, even if it's just a handful of stuff that you stick in your mouth just to keep going. But nobody, I should, I don't think anybody should be on the run for more than, you know, 48 hours these days, you know, <laughs> from that side, never mind um, seven days and eight nights. But it, yeah, I think, the, like I say, the only positive things was the lessons that we learned from that and, um, you know, how it affects the human body and mind. Incredible. Um, Absolutely incredible. But, uh, Every student of, uh, of warfare, um, the human condition even should read, should read this, this book. Um, and so had this not happened, had the Gulf War not happened, would you have stayed in the SES? Were you planning to stay in for a long time or what? Yes. What was yeah, that no, I, I was, transition a, like? I was, um, well, I was a in, in my own you know mind. I was a, a like there. I was there full time. I was going to stay. Now, what happened was there was three incidents that that all kicked off. Now, I I'm I can't say I was suffering from like a PTSD or anything like that. You know, I just I will not hang on onto that. Be, you know, my behavior changed somewhat. But when I went to training wing. Um, the first guy I passed into the regiment um, was the first guy to be killed in Bosnia. And it's a lad called Fergus Rennie. Now, during my 
10 years up to this point, um, I'd been to 18 funerals of guys and there wasn't that many conflicts going on. We had Northern Ireland and various other things, but it was like on average, two guys a year would get killed. And then you would, you know, you would miss your mate if he died. In fact, my first deployment my, within a month, uh, I'm giving my staff sergeant the kiss of life and he died. Um, he, he'd, he, 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 um, he was involved with an accident. I'm trying to revive him, but he died on me. Um, now you, you mourn them, you, you have the funeral and then you, you move on because I think we had this sense of we're doing this as a job and that it can happen to any of us. Mm -hmm. But when I was on training wing, um, young Fergus, as I say, was the first soldier I passed into the SAS. I knew I could look into his soul because I knew him that well. And it was nearly when I... When I got the phone call to say he'd been killed, it was like losing a child, um, or what I would have said was like losing a child. And that had a, a negative effect on me, and I started questioning, should I be here? Then I was, I was doing um, a, a free fall. Uh, we were doing some Halo, and um, uh, typical with the Army rigs in them days, because it was the old 360s. Um, I deployed and ended up with a bag of washing above mm -hmm. my head and um, I ended up coming to earth a little bit too fast and um, broke my ankle and uh, my vertebrae. And they said, you'll be flying a desk for, you know, probably at least two years. And I thought, you know, I didn't join the regiment to be, you know, behind a desk. And then at the same time, I was offered a job running Stavros Nyarkos's personal security. Now, at the time, it was before the tech billionaires came about. He was the second richest man in the world. And it, this thing with Fergus was playing on my mind, the stuff that had happened in the Gulf. And I just thought, you know what? I'm 32 years old. Take the opportunity. You know, you're young enough to start a new career because you're just going to go around in circles by staying in the regiment. Um, so I, I left and, and got into the old private contracting world. And then obviously the book started and I left the contracting and, you know, started making a living through the novels. But um, nothing was ever planned. I mean, it was just just good luck, you know. I, I had some good luck or somebody was looking, somebody was looking after me. Yeah, well, I mean, you've been... Uh, it's it's amazing what you've done since uh, since leaving the regiment. Um, what you've passed on, the lessons you've passed on, some of the history that you've done, some of the children's books that you've done. You, I, I, you've, it's amazing. And is it is it? Uh, I guess I guess my first question on that side of the house was it therapeutic to write this novel? Is that no, 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 no. Um, I'll tell you what. There's two times. Um, sorry. There's two things. Um, it, when I started with that. Um, the, the one I got away, it just brought a, a load of um, bad memories mm -hmm. back. And I, I found it, it was like a negative process. Um, 15 years later, I, um, I did a TV program for, I think it was National Geographic History. And um, I, I live a lot of the time out in the Alps in France. And um, I was debriefed over a period of eight, eight days. And during that period, um, because it was so intense, I, I was remembering things that I'd forgotten about um, from them. So I would get back and then I'd be lying in my bed, looking at the ceiling, thinking of other things. Then I would go in, I would take notes, get back uh, and tell them. And then, and I was all exhausted. And to tell you the truth, I was probably suicidal at the end of it. 
and I vowed that I would never do it again. Um, it, it put me into a really uh, dark, dark place. And um, I just said, no, that's it. I won't do it again. Wow. And, and that and that's all those years later doing that for National Geographic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was actually um, probably about, I did it about, I think that National Geographic was probably about four or five years ago. Um, but it was it was really, it was a really intense debriefing. I thought I ain't doing yeah. it. And I'll tell you, it was funny because I was invited by a, a, another seal who's my neighbor in Florida. He took me over to the museum. Yeah, I was going to ask um, you about the seal museum. I saw that on your uh, your Instagram yeah, that you've yeah. been there. So I had a great, great day there with Ben. But then he also had a contact at night's um, armaments, oh, yeah. got, me, got me in there. And uh, one of the security guards in there was a, an ex-PD uh, from Orlando. And uh, we're just chatting with the uh, two, crea- uh, uh, two guys that work on the weapons. And um, this guy went, um, we've met somewhere. And I went, where are you from? He went, Orlando. I went, no, definitely haven't met. I said, were you in the military? He went, no, PD. And uh, we're just chatting away. And he said, have you been on TV? <laughs> and what it was, it was my accent. And this guy reckon, recognized my accent and then put two and two together. And it was really funny because uh, it's the only time I get, ever get, I've, I've been recognized in America. Oh, really? Interesting. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, I just get away with it. So, um, but I'll tell you what, that night's armaments was some place. I want to go. I've not been there yet, but I need to, I need to go. Such a rich history yeah. and, oh my gosh, amazing spot. Yeah. I need to get down there. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. No, it was funny because um, three guys from... From Delta, I know Delta has different names now, like Unit, CAG, and all the rest of it. And it's, it depends on on your age yeah, group. No, and it's, the it's head, interesting. The, the head of um, um, uh, Knights was there, and he said, "Oh, I've got some guests coming in." And the three of them were standing there. I went, "They're Delta guys." He went, "He went, Nelly White." He went, "No, no, no, no." <laughs> he said, "You can't say that." And I went, "I'm telling you now, they're Delta guys, mate." And he said, "How do you know?" I said. They could be seals, Delta, and I said, I don't know exactly what they look like. Oh yeah, no, exactly. You could tell, you know, sunglasses, what tattoos, shoes, flip flops, yes. belt. I mean, there's so many little tells uh, where you can yeah. figure out what somebody is, and wait, almost like right down to the to the unit. You know, it's amazing. It's incredible. I love. I, I worked that into my novels, but uh, at this point, you've done seventy novels. Yep, 30, 30 kids, and um, it's coming up. It'll be coming up to 50, um, 50 novel, adult novels. That's amazing. So I've been focused on the, you know, the adults. I didn't know you had a, a children's thing until I just quickly, you know, wanted to do a little research before we talk because I feel like I've known you for so long, but I had no idea that you had the children's ones. So I'm going to get those for my kids and and all that stuff because it seems like what a, what a cool thing to, to be doing. Well, what happened was, and I'm sure when you, do, same for yourself, when you do, you know, a presentation, there's going to be guy like guys come up with their kids, mm-hmm. young boys. And because of the, the type of language and descriptions in the books, they're not suitable for right. a certain age was, you know, certain for me. And it was two young kids said, why don't you do books for, for boys? And I never thought of that concept. And I had a word with my publisher at the time and, um, they, they they went, oh, well, you're an SES guy. You don't need to be around kids. And I'm thinking, <laughs> wait a minute, like, you know, what do you mean by that? And um, so sat there thinking about it. And then there was a big drive for books for boys because predominantly boys read less than girls. It's tough to get or, find you know, them something that's uh, that's good, that's going to interest them because you're yeah. competing now with all these digital distractions. So it's tough. Exactly. So again, I started them um, with the idea of uh, like being a young boy uh, audience, but Girls, I think because girls are quite lucky, they can read action books, flowery books. Mm. Boys have got to have something that is masculine to a certain degree, whether it's sport, military, 
you know, hunting. So they went from strength to strength. And um, I get more satisfaction out of going to a school now. And when I meet a, a young boy, maybe from 14, 15, 16, and they've never read a book uh, or can't mm-hmm. read. And, you know, this is in, in our schooling system. It just sends me with dread and saddens me. And I think I owe it to the system to put something back in there to encourage these kids into reading because we both know you can be as techie as you want. If you can't read when you leave school, mm-hmm. you don't have a cat in hell's chance of surviving. Yeah, And it's just, I think, whether it be if you're a sportsman or you know a role model, whatever your background you have, is try and encourage children to you know to read and and again i think in some cases publishing can be quite snooty and it certainly with my publishers there's writers there who will not go to the lower ends of society the schools there because you know they don't want to mix with them or they don't they're a different class system they're the kids that you need to be going in and targeting and i'll tell you what they relate to you Mm. and they they ask quest they ask questions that an adult wants to know but won't ask. Yeah, and they, I've had letters from guys now in their 30s who have said, I can remember when you spoke to me and I'm reading this, you know, this um, section of books. That maybe, you know, I don't care if it's not mine. I'm like, that's fine, but you're reading. That's great. And, um, you know, and then like the, both you and I, unbeknown to us, are probably great recruitment tools for the military because you get a young kid at 16 and reads that, he's like, I want a piece of yeah. that. And, and John- It worked on me. All the books I was reading growing yeah. up, they all had protagonists with backgrounds I wanted in real life one day. You know, there was yeah, a, yes. Tom Clancy yeah. and Nelson DeMille and AJ Quinnell and Steve uh, Stephen Hunter and and uh, Mark Olden, all these guys mm. who had typically at that time Vietnam experience. That's what the protagonist had yes, like in yeah. the 80s. Uh, and so yeah. it, it worked on me uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm definitely- aware of that uh, as, I, as I'm writing, but doing the children's book or the young adult, I guess, uh, type of books uh, or something, it's something that interests me at some point in the future, just because of what you just said about capturing those, uh, them early on, passing on some lessons, some little history, that love of reading, uh, all those things that, uh, that are so important for uh, a richer, fuller life. Um, as you move forward, rather than just this instant gratification of a video game and getting a point and hearing a beep and getting a buzz on your electronic device. So uh, mm-hmm. in the future, that's something, uh, as I take a breath here and look at the road ahead, that's something that I'll be looking at very closely. And also, I mean, this is, like I say, a selfish reason. Um, it's you When you ask the question, why does an adult pick up a book, whether he's at the airport, train station, or whatever, and usually there's an association with a name. Now, if you've captured a young boy at 14 and he's read, say, a series of your books, when he comes in and sees your name in adult books, that's the book you'll be picking off. Oh, yeah. And it expends, it extends your life like yeah. expectancy <laughs> in terms of writing. Right. Well, there's that part too. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. J- James Patterson has done that quite, uh, you know, quite successfully uh, as well. Yeah. He followed me, oh, by did the he? way. He's after you? Did he do the, ch- the uh, young adult children's after you? Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. was going to look yeah. at the dates actually when we got <laughs> yeah. off this, but I'm glad you, that's interesting. That's one of the ch- questions a children would have, a child would have asked that I wasn't going to ask. I was going to research it myself. <laughs> interesting. And were you always a reader okay. growing up? Were you? Did you always yes. have this... Uh, well, 
Uh, did you always know you would write eventually or were you just a reader? No, 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 no. It was uh, just a reader. Uh, my father used to read a lot and he would read all, you know, it was all military, um, whether it be history or, you know, um, uh, uh, fictional novels. And I would ask, you know, can I, can I read it? And he'd be like, no, um, it's not for, for you. Well, I mean, I, the one that sticks out is the devil's God. Oh, yeah. And that I, was I have it just right over lost. here. It's right. I can see yeah. it right here. All my books <laughs> yes. are on yeah. this side, my old office, yeah. they used to be behind me but we're in a, a rental now yeah. so they're all on this wall and I can see it right there devil's mm -hmm. guard and I was just lost in that and I just thought you know it, it was probably one of the books that certainly pointed me that I wanted a bit of action mm. uh, you know from that side and um because we weren't a, a wealthy family and and back in those days in the the 60s you only had three stations um on your mm -hmm. tv it was black and white um, and yeah, my, my old man always had a book in his hand. My mum, again, um, she didn't want myself and my brother, uh, reading those type of books, but she wanted us to read. And, um, even back then, you know, they knew the importance of reading. And I don't think they were too bothered about, you know, what was going on with history, geography or whatever, you know, they, they wanted us to work, but reading was the, the first thing, you know, to make sure you could Very read. similar to how I grew up in that uh, my mom was a librarian, still is, grew up with this love of reading, this love of mm. books, uh, surrounded by books. And it was just a natural thing that we did. It wasn't like, hey, put something else down, put the device down, because there weren't devices back then. Um, and now it's time to read. It was just as normal as going outside to play or having dinner or yeah. whatever else it was reading. Mm -hmm. uh, that was just a natural part of growing up. And I think we've lost that with all these uh, these distractions. Um, well, just mentioning your mum there, being a librarian, the librarian used, used to be the key person in a village or a town. If you had a good librarian in a library, they would promote reading. And I see it by going into schools. When you have a passionate librarian and who really loves reading, she will sort them kids out a book that will suit yep. them. You know, she won't force something onto right. them. And they are just, a, you know, they're so valuable to have but i mean back in the uk we were having cutbacks with libraries and because they're they're government funded and they're becoming less and less and it's 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 sad to see see them go um but yeah oh, it's amazing and then when you did the run that got away how long was it until you decided okay i'm gonna give i'm gonna try my hand at fiction now going forward um well what happened was um the, the, I only wanted to do one book and hence the Chris Ryan name, because um, obviously, you know, m m my name's Colin Armstrong type of thing, but um, which is no big deal. It's out there. But um, it was just to get my my story straight, because there'd been an adaptation of a movie and it had my name on it. But I had nothing to do with the writing or the production or anything. And it was to balance that to get back at them. And it, it was deemed as a, a public a publishing success. Now my editor wanted me to do other books on on um, on the SES, and I said I'm not interested. And then he flagged up and he said, "What about like faction, and you know, based on events but fictional characters?" Um, so that was probably about two years after after that book. And I, they were all the, the first five were done in the first person, which was just basically basically account, you know, like recounting uh, re, um, other missions and. Um, um, but it's always a learning process, I think, and you always strive to get better. And the more you do it, the more you understand the process and, you know, the twists and turns or the angle you can take 
you know, the reader. Um, but um, yeah, and then I'm sure you you feel the same when when that book comes out. It's it's nearly like going on a mission because you think I'm I'm waiting for them trolls to oh. come out just like them Iraqis, today, you know. Yeah, so, especially today, you know. Before <laughs> you know, if you're in the 80s, 90s, 70s, 60s, you had to find a an address. You had to write yes. a letter. You had to then yeah. write the letter, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, get it to the right place. Then that had to actually end up on the person's desk, a bunch, a pile of other letters. Then they had to actually read yours and think you weren't, okay, yeah. you're not a crazy person. And then maybe put it in a newspaper or a magazine or something like that. Yeah. The odds mm-hmm. of it getting that far are you know, slim. Today, no barriers. That crazy person, <laughs> it's right out there regardless. It is. And I'll, I'll tell you what, it, it was interesting. I was having this discussion just before um, I interviewed um, a, a Royal Marine who is a triple amputee. I saw that. He stepped on, your, on, a, on your Instagram. Yeah, Amazing. Instagram. Yeah. So I did that podcast and, and posted that it had done on my Instagram account. And um, I had about three trolls come back with, with you know, detrimental uh, messages. And I'm thinking, what's going through your head? First of all, to say that to a veteran who's lost both his legs and his arm and and the negativity. And like you say, they're hiding behind some computer, Mm -hmm. probably on a a made up account um, and waiting for something to say. I just think, you know, you you must be a twisted individual to, to, to spare a couple of hours of your life to send something negative. It's incredible. And it's incredible. I call it, uh, I heard someone say it, I've adopted it now, digital courage. So they're behind instead yeah. of liquid courage from drinking, it's now digital courage yes. behind your, your keyboard and monitor there. But uh, even some of the Amazon reviews, people take a long time to tell you how much they don't like you or how much uh, they you know, despise your work or whatever else. And uh, that's a lot of time that they could be spending maybe following their own passion, their own dream, helping someone out yeah. maybe, or uh, mm-hmm. maybe leaving another review for a book that they liked. Or just, yes. it's, a, it's amazing how how when we only have one we're only on this ride, this this life, one ride, that's it. And you yeah, get yeah. to decide mm-hmm. how you're going to allocate your resources, how you're going to spend your time. And you choose to be negative and even hateful with an hour, two hours, three hours, or even if it's just a few seconds, you know, that is time that yeah. you are not getting back. And that's how you've chosen to spend it. it. Know, Psychologically, it it's just, it's a, it's fascinating to me. Well, I, I, I usually sang, send a, a message back saying, listen, mate, it's um, mind over matter. I don't mind because you there don't you matter. <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs> there you go. That's classic. And uh, you know, before I let you go, I know we're getting long here, but uh, I, it's, it's so amazing being able to talk to you. Um, Strike Back. How did that occur? Because my first novel is being turned into a series for Amazon right now. Uh, MJ Bassett Good. just did a uh, just directed one of the episodes. Who directed? I think twelve yep. episodes of Strike Back and produced I think twenty four or so. Um, but uh, but how how did that all all come about for uh, for you? Well, what was your journey as far as that goes? And what was your level of involvement? Well, I did um, my, a novel under the same name, Strike Back, and. Um, that was picked up and the first uh, episode was shown in the UK. Now, HBO got on board with Sky and then it was a, it was a joint venture from US, UK. And then I think the second episode was the number one episode in, in say, the US. So you were, you were missing one episode. Now, I, I worked with the scriptwriters on the first episode and I've had experience where 
I did another TV series called Ultimate Force, which should have been called Ultimate Farce, <laughs> because the trouble is you end up getting a script writer who knows more about, say, the SEALs or the SES than you yeah. do, you know, from that side. So then you've got a de- director who knows more about being in the military than you do. <laughs> and then you've got an actor who thinks he knows what a SEAL is. And on the first, my first TV uh, shows, I-, I was getting uptight about it. So I did strike back, signed it over, and I said, I'm not coming on set. It's up, up to you. You do whatever. Then I was sat in Florida and I got the news that, they were going to run this. And I thought, yeah, right, we'll see. So I watched the second second uh, series um, in, in Florida. And I thought, hmm, I don't understand this. There's naked women and a lot of guns. <laughs> That's the magic like, formula. <laughs> yeah, yes. And I thought, you know, this is not going to last. And uh, it did. It yeah, went to nine. Crazy. Like, and I was just thinking, thank yeah. you. Thank you. It's great. Yeah. It, it's always better, I think, to have a series uh, an hour-long series that's going to run for like, sorry, uh, um, uh, run for like say nine series with loads of episodes, then like an hour-long movie. So. Um, yeah, because that I mean that's hitting the public or sustain them, s- sustaining them over six months. Yeah, you know? no, I think so. And it is yeah, good. growing up, but it, it was well received. In yeah, America. no, people love it. It's great. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. It's it's fun. That's why because it, it's fun, and then it has those elements that you just mentioned. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they certainly don't hurt. Uh, you know, and it, you know, so it's different in in a lot of, of respects, which helped it break out. Um, you know, and it, and it has a basis in your novels and, and the rest of it. So I think it's fantastic. And growing up, of course, when we did, you think movie, you think book adaptation to movie, and then. You know, of course, now that we're in this this field, it's like, ah, okay, streaming services and series and okay, yes. people want to sit down yeah. and want to immerse themselves and binge watch and all that. Mm-hmm. So I think for especially when you're telling the story or adapting a novel to to a visual medium, that uh, doing the series is a good way to, to go and tell that story. Okay. No, no, for sure. I mean, you think of all the big names, they've had lots of movies out and you know, TV shows. Um, but again, the way of promoting um, uh, novels now has changed from when I started 25 years ago. It used to be, you know, a book a book signing at a shop, um, which no longer happens. It used to be theatre events, which really doesn't happen. And since we've had COVID, definitely doesn't happen. So they're relying on Instagram, you know, Facebook and stuff like that. And it, it it's slightly detached where you're not actually meeting your readership and they, they want to know who you are. They want to shake yeah. your hand. You know, they just want that signature on the book mm-hmm. and stuff. But I think this last year has been very trying. Yeah, it's so, an interesting you know, time to adapt. And what I do is I yeah, I didn't think about the business side when I got into this. I just thought, okay, I thought you write a novel, you send it to New York, they publish it, you start your next one. I had no idea that you had to do all those things you would need to do with any business from marketing and advertising, <laughs> social media, engagement, budgets. Like I had no yeah. clue that that existed. And about two months before my first novel in 2018, I, I kind of came to this realization that, oh, there's, there's a business side to this. And I can either sit back yeah. and do none of it and expect someone else to do it for me, like a publisher who has, like in the military, you have assets and you have to figure out how you're going to allocate those assets based on what's happening in the battlefield right here. Well, same in publishing. They get to decide where those yeah. al- they're going to allocate those assets. Uh, and I need now to mm-hmm. prove that I was a good investment. So I 
you know, embraced yeah. it and just looked at it like I do the battlefield, which is how am I going to adapt? Uh, is there some momentum I can capitalize on uh, the gaps in the enemy's defenses, whatever it might be. Uh, but now it's either on the business side of publishing or on the written pages, I'm telling the story. So it's, uh, <laughs> so it's all been fun for me because it's all, it's all new and it's the writing, what I wanted to do since I was a little kid, other than be a seal was to write. Yeah. But then the business side of it is actually fascinating as well, because I'm learning new things every day on that front. Oh yeah, totally. Which is a lot of fun. And you know, I mean, again, when you see that, that huge wave of books coming out every year, you know, certainly in September, October, you realize what you're up against. And uh, when the big guns start rolling, you think, geez, you know, how, how can I get this, uh, you know, published? Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting, but you, you know, we give, I think a lot of pleasure to people and, um, and, and touch a lot of people. Yeah, no, you've been an inc um, incredible success, 70 books. Uh, even when I was going to, I wanted to ask you about the fisherman's daughter. Um, where did that, well, uh, how did that come about? Basically my mom, um, she, um, she was fighting cancer. Um, she'd been fighting it for uh, nine years. And then finally they, they said she's got three months uh, to live uh, maximum, uh, so managed to get her into a hospice where they were doing the pain management. And, um, she, she, she was a warrior to the day she died. Um, and I used to sit with her. And uh, she said, can you just tell me a story? And I made this um, story up of, of uh, two families in a Scottish uh, town that were fishermen. And um, it was more of a family saga. Like, this, is, this is key. I'd, at the end, uh, this was like verbal to my mum. My and um, just before she died, she said, will you please... Um, you know, published that book. Her sister had died of cancer and her name was Molly. And um, I said, yeah, I'll get that done. And went to the publishers and they were humming and hawing, thinking, can we do this? And I went, well, please, you know, support me on this. And uh, my editor, when he was looking at the script, he went, this is supposed to be a family saga. And I went, yes. He said, it's more violent than a, <laughs> than a Chris Ryan novel. And it's true in terms of you write about what you know. Um, so I tapered it down, but basically the premise of that that story was um, uh, keeping my mum her her mind from the pain um, as she was, um, you know, in the latter stages of life. That's amazing, incredible. Those personal stories that have those personal touch points are just so powerful. And the latest book is Manhunter. Is that is that right? That's the latest yes. one. I mean, yes. with seventy, yes. it's hard to yeah. keep track. It's a, it's amazing. Yes. And and I love seeing yours out there, especially when I travel through the UK or I I travel okay. to South Africa or I, like I see them in those yeah. bookstores and and all over the place. It's it's incredible. Yeah. I love seeing that out there because I love seeing when guys leave the military, they find that next passion in life, find that next mission in life, and you've done it in uh, in in a way that is uh, inspiring to me and so many others. But uh, Manhunter is the latest, and that's uh, that's out there now. Yes. It um it's it it um published on t the twenty seventh, so in the next few Amazing. days. Okay, yeah. and I love the cover, by the way. Great cover. Oh no, yeah, thank no. you. Great cover. Yeah, thanks. And then uh, are you on the? I mean, with seventy books, are you doing three a year? Like, what what, what does that math even work out no. to? How does that even? Well, it used. To, I mean, some of them are nonfiction because mm. I've I've done a couple of books of the history of yeah. the SAS, um, in like yeah, you know, fitness book right. and stuff like that. Um, but it's the kids' books. Um, they're they're about fifteen thousand words, okay. thirty thousand words. Um, so I could I could do about three or four of those per year. I went through a stage where I was doing two novels per year, but you know what? It was it was really hard work. Um, and then I think you, you start scrabbling or scrambling for ideas and 
one was stronger than one story would be stronger than the other. And I said, listen, can we just dial this back to one story? Yeah, one a year. I can't and imagine doing two a year. I'm on the one a year right now. You know, it's, it, yeah. Even that's tough. Uh, it's about right though. Yeah, it's I think, about right. If you stay yeah, on I, pace and, and all that, like it's about right. Juggle everything you need to juggle. I think that's about right. But two a year, I already know yeah, I could not do that. No, it, it, it's, it's hard. And then you start wondering, you know, how can I kill somebody differently <laughs> in this next, in this yeah, next yeah. level? No, that's the fun part. Uh, <laughs> that part I find very therapeutic. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, I kept you an hour longer than I said I would. That's so okay. I, I sincerely yeah, no, no. appreciate you taking the time to, to sit down with me. It's uh, it means so yeah. much to me that you would do this. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we can meet up in, in person one of these days soon. De definitely, I love that. Definitely. I would love that. And uh, and where can people find you online? It's it's X S A S Chris Ryan on on Instagram. Yes, okay. that's that's the Instagram, and um, you know they they can see you know the the podcasts and um, and everything else. But yeah, it's X E X S A S Chris Ryan. Yeah, I love I love your Instagram. I love uh, the history that you post about the S A S. Those sort of things when they pop up on different anniversaries here and there. Uh, it's very very unique. Some of the photos that you have on there, the graphics that you have on there. It's a, you do a fantastic job with it. So, uh, yeah, thank you for for writing these novels. Thank you for sharing these lessons. Um, and uh, yeah, I am excited to, to to meet up in person one day. Let's uh, let's make that happen. Well, listen, thank you so much for having me on, and uh, look after yourself, and all the best for your novels oh, as well. Thank you so much. The home buying experience can be a daunting one. Navy Federal Credit Union is here to help military members and their families tackle homeownership. They offer mortgage options with zero down payment, so you don't need to wait years to save. They offer mortgage options that don't require private mortgage insurance, so you'll save money each and every month. Members save $2,500 on average when they choose Navy Federal for their mortgage. With resources like Realty Plus, you can get an experienced real estate agent, and Navy Federal is a top VA home lender. Learn more at NavyFederal.org insured by NCUA, an equal housing lender. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of The Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash danger close and use code danger close 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. It's time to get mountain tough. Make America tough again, right there on the shirt. You know, when you go to the gym and you don't know what workout to do, I hate that. With Mountain Tough, they have created the most functional fitness programs ever designed, all delivered to your phone. Created by veteran Navy SEALs and Army Rangers, they make it convenient to go to the gym, do the prescribed workout, and get in the best shape of your life physically and mentally. As you know, if you've been following me for a while, I've been doing a lot more typing than I've been doing running or lifting or doing any functional type fitness. So... This is how I'm going to get back after it. Mountain Tough. Plus, they're awesome guys. Uh, I've met them down here. We did a little uh, podcast type interview together, and they are awesome. Solid crew. So 
that's what I'm going to be doing. And increase mental toughness, build muscle, improve endurance anytime, anywhere from any mobile device. Thousands of hours of testing on dedicated mountain hunters, first responders, and military personnel programs for everyone. Those who hit the gym and heavy weights, those who like to work out at home with no gear at all. Guidance for beginner, intermediate, and elite athletes. The right nudge from the right person at the right time can change your destiny. And regardless of your age or circumstances, I am nudging you to start today as I know the Mountain Tough programs and Mountain Tough community will enable you to become the best version of yourself. Mountain Tough, that is M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H, is offering Danger Close listeners 20% off all their online training programs and apparel with the code DANGERCLOSE at mtntough.com. Welcome to the gear highlight portion, the Danger Close podcast. All right, so I have a few things to go over today, but I want to start right here. Zev Technologies. And uh, Alec Wolf at Zev Technologies has been uh, awesome to me, to my family, well before I was an established author, had a podcast, had an Instagram account uh, back when I was still in the Navy. And uh, could not have been kinder to me and my family when we were dealing with uh, a middle child with some very severe special needs who needs a lifetime of full-time care. So uh, while I was still in, Alec Wolf. Uh, I'll never be able to thank him enough for everything he has uh, done for for our family. And he's remained a dear friend over the years. And he's teamed up with a new friend of mine, Christian Craighead of the SAS. Uh, we finally got to meet in person this year. And uh, what an amazing guy he is. Uh, so humble, so kind. Uh, and if you don't know what he did, uh, search him online and uh, you can find out the story. He's done a couple podcasts now and uh, what he did in Nairobi a couple years back running to the sound of the guns is uh, nothing short of heroic. Uh, and man, my hat is off to him. That is sure for sure. Um, but he's teamed up with Zev Technologies on an OZ9 and uh, picked this up today. <laughs> yep, right off the bat. <laughs> Signed right there, Christian Craighead. And look at that. Oh, yeah. That is pretty cool. <laughs> awesome. So the OZ9 are right here. Pistol. There we go. So look at that. Brand new out of the box. Still has the tag right there. Zev Technologies. So there it is. Check that out. Awesome. It's called OZ9 Craighead right there. So uh, threaded barrel right there. Uh, you can put a red dot right there. It's already cut. And ooh, this thing is nice. Awesome. So right there, Zev, man, Christian, amazing. What else does it come with here? Comes with a uh, compensator. Look at that. Yep. And a couple magazines. Yep. Very cool. And Yep, and Zev Technologies were actually the uh, the crew that linked me up with these boxes. If you've seen me do the um, the uh, the boxes that I do when a book launches, well, SKB cases, uh, put in contact uh, with them through Zev Technologies. And look at this—you get a little card here with some extras. What do we got here? Oh, what do we got here? Oh, looks like some oh, springs, some extra parts in there. Yeah, I can't wait to get on the range, hopefully with Christian shooting this uh, fairly soon. So that just uh, that just fires me up. So, man, awesome job, guys. And uh, when I heard this was coming out, I wanted to get it so I could support Zev and uh, support Christian Craighead. So as soon as I saw that this was coming out, I uh, jumped on it immediately, called them and bought it. 
And um, I think they're only making a few. So I think this is a limited run. And when these are done, I think they're done forever. Uh, check me on that. You can go to Zev Technologies, check out their Instagram, go to zevtechnologies.com. And uh, that's where you can, can click to, to get it. And also check out Christian Craighead's uh, Instagram as well. He has some videos out there talking about this. And I believe this is a limited run. So awesome. Very cool, guys. I am fired up to go shoot this. All right. What else? I'm just going to horse soldier bourbon right now because we talked about handguns. Might as well talk about some, some whiskey. So uh, these guys right here, Scott Neal, um, 5th Special Forces Group, uh, some of the first into Afghanistan after 9-11, making horse soldier bourbon right now, horse soldier whiskey. Um, yeah, awesome. Somebody brought this to me actually on Book Tour. So thank you so much for dropping this off on Book Tour. I appreciate all the whiskey that I got uh, over those, uh, I think it was 11 days or so of book tour and everybody that came out to say hello, hello and, and, uh, shake hands and, and say hi and get a book signed. Uh, thank you so much. That's, uh, meant the, meant the world to me. Speaking of that, here we go in the blood. It is out now. It's been out for not quite a month, uh, right now, I think, but it was number one New York times and hardcover combined and on audio. So Thank you to everybody who made that happen. Um, this means the world. And if you if you liked it, please leave a review on Amazon or wherever you get your books. And this is cool too. So a new edition of The Terminal List right there. Look at that guy on the cover. Who's that guy? Yep, Chris Pratt. July 1st, The Terminal List coming to Amazon Prime. And it's an eight-part series. It drops all at once so you can binge it. And uh, usually they don't do hardcovers uh, when there's a movie or a show that comes out based on a novel, but this time that's what they did. And I wrote a new foreword in here that talks about how this book came to be, how the series came to be. And uh, so that's all in here right there. Yep. It'll be a little sneak peek. So it's not just like one paragraph. It goes in depth uh, on how all that came to be. And then in the middle are photos. Ooh taken by Justin Lubin. And uh, he was there every day to document. I'll give you another sneak peek right now. Oh, who's that guy? What? Yeah. So anyway, there's the hardcover and that new forward and the photos are only in the hardcover. Uh, the other ones right here, this is the mass market paperback. And then here is the trade paperback. So as you can see, the trade is just a little bit bigger right there than the regular paperback, but uh, they look awesome. So I am super fired up that uh, they did a hardcover for this. Um, yeah, just amazing. So those are out there now. What else? Let's see. Black Rifle Coffee Sticker Club. Did you know they had a sticker club? Well, now you do. And uh, this is what got sent out in May. So if you were a member of the, of the Black Rifle Coffee Sticker Club in May, this is what you got. Ooh. Yep. You got Tomahawk right there. Yeah. And who's that guy? Yep. Pretty sweet. Look at that. Chris Hunt designed these, by the way. Uh, Laissez faire on Instagram. Oh, I just love that. And uh, look at that one. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> Very creative. That's what I like about what they have going on over there. Very creative and uh, super fun. So you can check out the Black Rifle Coffee Sticker Club at their website, blackriflecoffee.com. And since I'm talking about that, look at that. Grizzly Forge, Lucas O'Hara, veteran-owned and operated Grizzly Forge. You've heard me talk about his knives before. Such a great guy. And this, as you may have noticed, is not a knife. This is the steak flipper. So this will be awesome this summer, cooking some steaks 
over the coals, over the fire. So awesome. Thank you, brother. This is awesome. Let's see. Might as well talk about some more Black Raffle Coffee. I got home and these things were stacking up. So look at this right here. Black Raffle Coffee Company, break the cycle and get dad something that doesn't suck. Get 20% off site-wide Father's Day flash sale, June 19th. So there's that. I think it's about 20% off bundles. So that came with, uh, with this while I was away. So awesome. And be sure to sign up for the Signature Coffee Club because every month you get a new coffee. Yep. And then it comes with stickers and comes with different instructions on how to prepare said coffee. So that is always awesome to get those. Josh Asaurus on Instagram. Look at that. That, you see that? I love this photo. He took this photo for me like a year ago. And uh, yeah, man, this thing is awesome. Uh, the new podcast studio, I'm gonna have to find a great spot for it. But I think that's just he takes amazing photos. And this one just really, really stood out to me. So he sent that to me. Um, so yeah, check out him and his work on, uh, on Instagram. Very cool. What else is going on here? As part of book tour, went to the Reagan library and I put some photos of that on my Instagram. You can go to, uh, at Jack Carr USA. And what an honor it was to speak at the Reagan library. Michael Reagan was there. Um, son Cameron was there. So it was just incredible to sit with them, uh, to stand and put our hands over our hearts and uh, say the Pledge of Allegiance together and uh, spend a little time together at the Reagan Library. And if you haven't been to the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, uh, just a little bit north of LA, definitely go and check it out. I'm going to go back. I'm going to bring my family, spend a little more time uh, because I was, as soon as I got there, I had to go shoot at Terrence Tactical, of course, down at the base of the hill and then uh, jump in the car and get up in time to to uh, to talk to the the auditorium full of people. I couldn't believe it. Just amazing. But uh, take the family back there and they have a tank in the parking lot. They have a stealth fighter on this uh, pedestal and it is just incredible. So I'll be going back and they gave me a couple things here. They gave me this pen, uh, Ronald Reagan's signature on it right there. So that right there. So thank you so much. Uh, means so much to me. Everybody at the library was incredible. Um, got some note cards there. Look at that, Ronald Reagan. Um, so yeah, I can't wait to go back and, and bring my family. Uh, right here, Ashter Knives. A, let's see, A-C-H-T-E-R Knives. You can go check him out and everything that, that he has going on. But look at that. So that is little Hawk right there. Oh yeah. That thing is pretty sweet. So, um, thank you so much, Herman, for showing up in Pennsylvania when I was there on book tour and, uh, gifting me this ax. So thank you, my friend. Very cool. And what else? Ah, Aries watches. So, uh, if you missed it, we did a, uh, a run of, uh, Jack Carr edition, Aries watches right there. Matt Graham is the, the owner operator there. And I did a podcast with him not too long ago. You can go check that out. Such a fascinating guy, such a cool guy. Uh, put the cross tomahawks on here and on the back. So uh, we did a limited run, but I think we're going to do something different here going forward and maybe do some more things together. So uh, check out Aries watches and all that Matt Graham has going on. Can't uh, recommend uh, him or his watches highly enough. And I think lastly, yeah, look at this. So this shirt right here, if you have read the books, you might know. Coomba Ranch. Yep, right there. Flathead Valley, Montana. Uh, very cool right here. Um, AJ Nickel, uh, right? Auto.nation.illustration 
on Instagram. So uh, that is very cool. Made this shirt for me and I sincerely appreciate it. It's really cool. And then made me a bunch of these Land Cruiser stickers as well. So look at that. You got the cross tomahawks on that if you can see it. Yeah. Awesome. So came home to a bunch more uh, boxes that are in the garage that I still need to open. I'll be getting to those shortly. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Chris Ryan, for sure, read The One That Got Away and check out all the other books that he has out there. You can follow him on the social channels at EX, as in X, S-A-S, Chris Ryan. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA. You can go to officialjackcar.com. That is the website. And until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy exactly. or right. Right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.